You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. In 2014, York Regional Police in Ontario established an undercover investigation known as Project Raphael, the objective of which was to reduce the demand for sexual services for minors in the region. The investigation involved officers posting fake advertisements in the escort section of Backpage.com, an online classified advertising website. When an individual would respond to an ad, an undercover officer posing as an escort would disclose the fact that she was underage. If conversation continued, an arrangement for sexual services and price was made, and the individual would be directed to a hotel room for the transaction to occur. Upon arrival, the individuals were then arrested and charged. Tematopi Dare, Erhard Hanifa, Mohammed Jaffer, and Corey Ramelson were all charged with child luring and communicating to obtain sexual services from a minor as a result of Project Raphael. Three of the four individuals were convicted at trial, and their appeals were dismissed at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. Mr. Ramelson's matters were stayed at the Court of First Instance, but the stay was set aside on appeal. Dare, Hanifa, and Jaffer sought and were granted leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Mr. Ramelson appealed as of right. In all four appeals, the Supreme Court will consider the proper analysis to be applied in determining whether the police entrapped a person within a virtual space like the internet. The Supreme Court of Canada is now hearing all four appeals together. Mr. Jaffer was found guilty by a jury of child luring under 18, contrary to section 172.1 sub 2 of the criminal code, and communicating to obtain for consideration the sexual services of a person under 18, section 212 sub 4, and now section 286.1 sub 2. The sentencing judge stayed the 286.1 charge pursuant to Keen Apple. Mr. Jaffer's defense of entrapment, a post-trial motion brought seeking to stay in proceedings, was dismissed at trial. His appeal of that dismissal was unanimously dismissed by the Ontario Court of Appeal. Similarly, Mr. Dare was found guilty of three offenses at his trial, child luring under 18, child luring under 16, and communicating to obtain sexual services from a minor. His post-trial entrapment stay application was also dismissed at trial, and his appeal at the Ontario Court of Appeal was dismissed. What follows is a presentation of the facts of each of the companion cases under appeal. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Canada's Court. My name is Misha Feldman, and I'm a defense lawyer practicing in Toronto. Today's appeal is Erhard Hanifa and Her Majesty the Queen. Mr. Hanifa was convicted at trial, but in a post-trial application, argued that his charges should be stayed due to entrapment. The trial judge dismissed the application. The issue on appeal was whether Mr. Hanifa was entrapped by reason of the police providing an opportunity to commit crimes without first having a reasonable suspicion that the appellants were engaged in criminal activity, or pursuant to a bona fide police inquiry. Justice Jurians found that, applying the Supreme Court's decision in Ahmad, the law of entrapment had not changed for virtual spaces. The appellants argued that the investigation was no more than random virtue testing. Justice Jurians disagreed. Hello, and welcome to Canada's Court, a podcast presented by the Criminals Lawyer Association. 
My name is Joelle Klein, and I'm a criminal defense lawyer and founding partner of Klein Criminal Law, located in Toronto. Today, we'll be hearing the case of Corey Daniel Ramelson and Her Majesty the Queen, which is an appeal as of right from the Court of Appeal for Ontario. At the court of first instance, Mr. Ramelson argued that he was entrapped by police to commit the offenses charged and made an application for a stay of proceedings accordingly. The trial judge dismissed the application, but after the dismissal, the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Ahmad was released. The trial judge invited the parties back to make further submissions on the issue of entrapment, and this time, the trial judge found that the police actions constituted entrapment and entered a stay of proceedings. The Crown appealed. A unanimous panel at the Court of Appeal for Ontario allowed the appeal. Mr. Ramelson appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of uh, Corey Danielle Ramelson against Her Majesty the Queen, and between Erard Anifa against Her Majesty the Queen, and between Tammy Tope Dare against Her Majesty the Queen, and Mohamed Abbas Jaffer against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant Corey Danielle Ramelson. Richard Litkowski and Miles Anovich. For the appellant, Erard Anifa Boris Baitensky. For the appellant, Mohamed Abbas Jaffer, Brina Van de Beek and Hussein Ali. Mr. Temitope, there for himself. For the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Lisa Feinberg and Cathy Doherty. For the intervener, Director of Public Prosecutions, David Quayat and Chris Greenwood. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Michael Lacey and Brian Badali. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Mr. Gerald Chan and Spencer Bass. For the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Danielle Glatt and Catherine Fan. Mr. Litkowski. I just want to make sure also that everybody understands that uh, Justice uh, Sheila Martin is participating online. ...following manner. Um, I will begin with about 20 minutes of submissions. Mr. Bytensky will then uh, proceed from that point on and then Ms. Van de Beek will uh, conclude uh, with the remaining time left to the appellants. I want to begin uh, my submissions uh, first by focusing on the specific facts and scenario that Mr. Ramelson found himself in, and then speak about some broader issues relating to the definition of virtual space and how that interrelates with random virtue testing. And then Mr. Bytensky hopefully will be able to pick up from there. In my respectful submission, the trial judge in this matter, Justice DeSaw, an experienced trial judge, familiar with the rules of entrapment, specifically in the area of dialodope, correctly modified his original entrapment ruling on the second application. He did not, as the Crown below uh, suggested, err by actually adding an extra step to the entrapment analysis. That's what the Crown argued below, 
And this, uh, and the Court of Appeal for Ontario expressly, at paragraph 90 and following of its decision, uh, rejected that argument. In my condensed book, I, I briefly set out uh, the relevant passages of Justice DeSau's uh, decision on the second entrapment application. And you'll see that at uh, uh, tab one, uh, <clears throat> beginning at page one. What I say Justice DeSau did, and this will help inform the rest of the appellant's submissions, is take into account what this court said, especially the majority of this court said, in Ahmed and Williams, when it comes to defining uh, virtual space for the purposes of the entrapment uh, analysis. What Justice DeSau did was take and build on the jurisprudence of this court in Ahmed and Williams. Ahmed and Williams, as you will recall, although made comments with respect to virtual space, was really about a more traditional form of virtual space, a phone call between two conversants. But we have in, in these appeals, it's something much qualitatively and quantitatively different in scope. What Justice DeSau did, and this is informed by the colloquy he had with the Crown, which is also in the condensed book, he found at the end of the day, there was simply, this, that this was an area that was simply too broad and too vaguely defined for the purposes of a bona fide investigation. The reason he then went on to parse the conversation and chat between my client and uh, the undercover police officer was to then address the second part of branch one of the entrapment test. So what he was doing was, I found that there's no bona fide inquiry. What I'm going to do next and what I have to do next is, of course, examine the conversation to see whether the officer, consistent with Williams, in the course of the conversation actually created or found a reasonable suspicion to believe that Mr. Ramelson was engaged in criminal activity. Those are the two parts of branch one of entrapment. Those are the two parts that Justice DeSau decided. And to the extent that the Court of Appeal agreed with him, I adopt what the Court of Appeal said. Now, unfortunately, that's where my agreement with the Court of Appeal for Ontario ends. And now I'm going to sort of shift a bit to discuss uh, why we as the appellants jointly say that the Court of Appeal went astray in not following the, some of the comments of this court in Ahmed and Williams. Ahmed and Williams presented uh, this court with the first real opportunity to address issues of virtual space beyond, as I said, a phone call. Now, in our uh, respectful submission, uh, it, it behooves this court to pick up on the language of Ahmed and Williams, because a failure to define the scope of virtual space and the bounds of a bona fide inquiry permits ultimately an overly broad and unlimited scope, which would be contrary to the carefully established principles of entrapment that began in Mack and Barnes from this court. One of the most important principles flowing from Ahmed is that a reasonable suspicion, whether spotlighting an individual or an area, must be focused, precise, and based on objective facts that stand up to independent scrutiny. That's a crucial passage from Ahmed in paragraph 46 of this court's decision. A virtual, virtual space that is too broad uh, cannot support a sufficiently re reasonable suspicion. 
I, I hearken back to Barnes, because in Barnes, as you recall, uh, the Supreme Court primarily was grappling with the bona fide inquiry issue. And in Barnes, Chief Justice Lemaire commented as follows, and this is, I believe, at page uh, 462 of Barnes, the reported decision. He commented as follows uh, on when, a bona fide, when an inquiry or an investigation would not be bona fide. He said, and I quote, I note in many cases the size of the area itself may indicate that the investigation is not bona fide. This will be particularly so when there are grounds for believing that the criminal activity being investigated is concentrated in part of a larger area targeted by the so, police. So these are all physical descriptions, breadth, large area. And, and I'm wondering um, how we translate those terms or whether there's, there's a metaphor or whether they're even applicable at all when we get into the virtual space. Because, of course, you know, the, the web is worldwide. We condense in little bits here and there, um, websites, web pages. Um, how, how do we go about doing that, applying those kinds of terms, if at all, in this kind of a case? Well, you, Justice Brown, thank you, thank you for that question. I, I, in my respect, Mr. Mission, you do that by beginning to properly identify just how different qualitatively and quantitatively is. Uh, virtual space from the other more traditional physical spaces. If we look at just sort of the numbers in this kind of in this case, for example, and, and, and this is why objectively discernible facts are important, and there were very few in this case, really, uh, from except police experience. But what I, for example, in this case, there was a production order that showed that in a two-week period, there were about seventeen thousand lines of text uh, exchanged between undercover officers and the uh, people who were tapped into this uh, website. Uh, one of the ways of perhaps of looking at, at it is how many people are actually uh, accessing the website on a daily basis. We know the statistics on that. Uh, how many people are, uh, are responding to the ads uh, on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis? Uh, is it an international uh, scope? Is it, is it more local? Now, in this case, uh, it involved the uh, York region and more of the greater Toronto area. Uh, we know that literally thousands of people were accessing this website. And courts, all the courts below have found that the majority, the vast majority of those people, and uh, the, the chief architect, the, the Frank Lloyd Wright, as I can put it that way, of this project, uh, Inspector Truong, agreed and acknowledged that the vast majority of people going on this site were not looking for the target of their investigation. What, what is the site? What site? What is precisely? It's the that? escort section of what used to be the back page website. But but now and then you go there and that's where you see the the, the, the see sort of ad. the headline. You see, well, you don't see the ad. You see a, a headline. You see a title or whatever a headline. You click on that. Do we know how many people went into that? If if we have an ad for whoever. Do we know how many people clicked onto that? I don't think there was evidence in, in this particular case of how many specific numbers of people, but Tron... That, would that not be the location, the ad? Well, I, I, with respect, I would say that the location is the escort section. Why? Because the police, because in defining the precise... That, that, because that's, first of all, how the police identified where they were going to place the ads. They determined that the escort section of back pages was a location where 
trafficking of underage girls, uh, mainly girls, was, was occurring. They selected that particular part of the back page uh, website. They, but they added to that particular wording that sort of narrowed it down to young, fresh, etc., which would distinguish it, I would have thought, from many, many, many of the ads, in fact, if not most of the ads that were published there. Well, I, 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 I would respond to that, Justice Muldaver, by saying that Inspector Truong's evidence was that there was not coded language that would directly address uh, only those people who were looking for underage uh, young people on the website. What kind of a code do you need? Well, Fresh, in, young, you know, whatever. Well, I, I cross-examined Detective Cook on that issue, and I put to him uh, from the so-called um, uh, playbook of how they were supposed to do things, uh, many of the ads, or some of the ads, would contain things like, um, oh, I can't, I, I have to meet you, but I can only do it after school. Uh, when my classes end, you'll have to pick up the, you'll have to set up the hotel room because I'm not old enough to do that. Uh, things like that, sending a clear signal to the person before the opportunity is given uh, to appreciate that there was a reasonable chance that this person they were conversing with was not uh, of age. So there are, there are, in the record, there is an examination, cross-examination precisely on those points and what, what could have been said. Can I, bring you, can I bring you back to why yes. I'm, I'm still struggling with why the ad itself is not the location, because it is only once somebody has clicked onto the ad that the opportunity is presented. Well, the opportunities could be presented at various points in time. As we've seen in, in, in my client's particular case, it was presented about 28 minutes into the conversation. No, but, but, but he's into the ad at that point. It's not, the it's not, it's not the, the opportunity isn't the, the presentation of the title. They click on the title, and then the opportunity is presented. At that point, they're in the ad. Why is that not the location? Well, I would submit, Justice Brown, that as I understand the, the, the jurisprudence of this court with respect to pre presenting an opportunity, the, the opportunity is presented, at, in this case, at the moment that the issue of age was introduced into the equation. It wasn't, the opportunity did not take place or was not made. Right when somebody clicked on the ad, because if somebody clicking on the ad is doing something perfectly but, lawful in the sense of... But the clicking on the ad, it, it brings them into, like, the clicking on the title brings them into the advertisement. Right, okay. And it's there that the conversation begins. But let's that, assume, uh, sorry. No, no sorry. go ahead. Let's, let's assume that scenario is accurate or, or correct or a valid way of interpreting it. If, if the ad itself and the clicking on the ad of itself is the defined area, then it clearly fails. Because the ad itself, everyone agrees, does not, does not speak to a person who is looking for an underage girl. It speaks to a person who wants to converse with a sex trade worker who is perfectly entitled to, make, to put these ads on. But online. I'm talking about reasonable suspicion over the location, not the person. But what re with, uh, I ask rhetorically, at that point, if the ad is the location, what is the reasonable suspicion but in respect of that ad? If you look at, if you look at uh, just to follow up on my colleague's question, if you look at Officer Trong's evidence, he's speaking exactly to the point that my colleague is making when he was asked, why do you use those expressions in the ad, the young, uh, fresh, uh, and, and so for brand new and so forth? His answer, because I wanted to draw in the individuals that were searching for prostituted children. Right. Like, he, he, like he's targeted. This is targeted. This is part of the, the target. And that he said that 
what was being adver- prostituted children that are being advertised on the back page, oftentimes it's coded language. So this was, this was, this was part of a design, was it not? Surely this is, this is for, to help us with the location. Surely this is that the ad is a key feature of it, no? Well, just Kazer, let me, let me answer that question by, uh, by suggesting that what you've just cited from uh, Inspector Truong's evidence and to some extent Detective Cook's evidence who testified in my case or my trial is, is, is experiential. It's based, and this goes back to what I said at the outset about reasonable suspicion having to be defined in a way that is, can be subjected to curial review, that, that this court can independently look at what is the basis of this officer's uh, belief or suspicion that this location, whether it's the ad or, or, the, or the section of the website, uh, it, it contains people who actively want to pursue young, young, underage people in prostitution. And looking at it from that perspective, uh, and I think the thing there's any debate about this, there was simply, in my respectful submission, no objectively discernible facts, nothing that this court can look at except Inspector Trong saying, in my experience. As, as Mr. Bytensky points out in his factum, uh, no statistics, no studies, uh, no hard numbers were presented to any court in any of these appeals uh, to establish the, the reasonable suspicion standard based on objectively discernible facts. Uh, you, you have to be very careful in my respectful submission. I'll segue a bit to, to an argument about objective discernible facts because uh, there's a history of, of, uh, of jurisprudence in various areas, including search and seizure law and detention law, including an earlier case from uh, Justice uh, Doherty in the Court of Appeal called Simpson, where the very reason we have and demand police officers to use objective standards that can be double-checked and reviewed by courts is because of the very danger that if it's based only on personal experience and anecdotal evidence, that could lead to discriminatory practices in, in how police investigate crimes. So, May I ask this question, please, though? In relation to uh, the Barnes case, are there any more discernible uh, objective facts um, in Barnes than are present here? Um, because oh, it, it seems to me there wasn't hard numbers, there wasn't statistics or that that allowed the court in Barnes to talk about a specified place. But, but in Barnes, you had, again, I think the distinction between a, a, a physical location and a virtual space. As Justice Brown, I think, pointed out, it's, it becomes a much more delicate um, process of defining what a, virtual, what a virtual space is versus uh, in Barnes where uh, I think it was like, uh, was it a 50-block radius? I can't remember what it was, or it was a smaller radius in Granville. It was Mall. six blocks. Six, six blocks, blocks, six yeah. blocks, not 50 blocks. That would, that would have been perhaps... Uh, a too large a space. It was a six blocks radius in Barnes. Uh, but, but that precisely, Justice Martin, and I'm sorry, I, I lost track of where you were there for a moment. I didn't see you. Uh, in, re- in response to you, Justice Martin, uh, that, that question you raised precisely points out the difficulties of simply trying to translate a traditional Mac, Barnes, and even Ahmed analysis to the uh, analysis that has to take place on virtual space. Uh, and the danger of, and I'll just end with this because I know my time is running out. I want Mr. Bytensky to have a full opportunity to pick up on some more specific points. But the, the danger of not precisely narrowly defining vir, uh, the virtual space is interrelated to the, the issue of random virtue testing. 
because the ability of the police to interact with so many people in so little time risks targeting uh, and random virtue testing marginalized and innocent communities. Mr. Lukowski, even if we... Can I ask this over here? Sorry, Justice Jamal. Can I ask this? Even if the uh, location is the um, escort section of Backpage rather than the specific ad and getting into the wording uh, of the ad to define the location, even if it's that portion of the website, why wouldn't that be the basis for a specific location and a proper bona fide inquiry under Ahmed and under Mac in light of uh, uh, Officer Trung's evidence? And it wasn't anecdotal. This was uh, uh, extensive uh, evidence about the uh, prevalence of child prostitution on the escort section of Backpage. Why wouldn't that be sufficient to meet the standard for a bona fide inquiry? Well, because, Justice Jamal, and, and I don't want to quibble with the word anecdotal, it, it, it was experiential, if I could use a more neutral term or perhaps less pejorative term. It, it was not based on statistics. It was not based on hard numbers. It was based on him reciting what you just said, but there was no backup for that. He was asked that by Mr. Bytensky. Do you have any actual data? Do you have any actual statistics? And he said no. And, 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 he, went, and he went even further and agreed a, that the vast majority of people who go on the escort section of back pages uh, are people looking for adult uh, sex trade workers. And secondly, he also agreed, and even the Court of Appeal for Ontario agreed, that the vast majority uh, of people who are, even, who are even confronted with the opportunity once the age is introduced, the vast majority also uh, uh, resiled and did not uh, take the bait, so to speak. But going back to Barnes then, most of the people in the six-block radius of uh, the Granville Mall were not engaged in illegal activity. Most of them were. I guess the problem is that your um, analogy would lead to uh, the investigation of online child prostitution really relegated to only the deep web, websites that are exclusively devoted to child prostitution and not websites where there is both legal and illegal activity going on. Well... uh... I would say that uh, with respect to the Barnes analogy, I think you can only take it so far. And I'll end, by, I'll end on this because I'm at 20 minutes, and I'll try to complete my answer to your question, Justice Jamal. Um, the problem with the Barnes scenario is, for example, in Barnes, an officer cannot go up to six different people at the same time and make an offer. In the virtual world, Detective Cook was sitting in his hotel room, and when I was cross-examining him, you'll see it in the record, he, he was saying he had like eight or ten conversations going on at once. It's the scope. It's one officer going up to each individual person in Granville Mall area in a six-block radius can only do so much in so much time. The, the problem with, that comes into random virtue testing is we've got Cook or Trong sitting in a room conversing with 10 people at the same time, perhaps more and more during, during the course of the hour. But in accordance with what we said in Ahmed, why does that matter? Ahmed makes clear, and Mac makes clear, if there is reasonable suspicion over a location, an opportunity can be offered to anyone. But my point is, and I think the appellants jointly would submit to you, that the, the, the evidentiary basis for establishing that there was reasonable suspicion in this location fell far short because of the, because of the evidence about how many people actually were. But that's a different point than, than well, you, you, you can't offer 10 at a time online as opposed to one at a time. No, but it's a, it's, a, it's a way of perhaps characterizing why virtual space is so more insidious in terms of the ability of the police to 
target a very larger, much larger number of people than he would in, in the physical confines of a, of a grand, grand Ramal. And just to final, finally on this point, Justice Jamal, um, you talk about the deep web and other websites. Well, uh, I, I put into my materials something I put in before the Court of Appeal for Ontario, and they decided in their own wisdom not to address my arguments on this, but the article by the two academics, which did an empirical study, uh, and it's the only one I'm familiar with thus far, of Project Raphael, suggests that the people that these kinds of projects and proactive learning investigations are targeting are simply not being caught by these kinds of projects. They submit that other aspects of police investigation, like a vice probe that's referred to in Trong's evidence uh, and in the Court of Appeal judgment, would be better, or at least using perhaps um, these kinds of proactive uh, investigative techniques as a first step to then identify a pool of people and then do proper investigations of those individuals. I highly commend that article. Uh, I I thoroughly reviewed it in my factum, and I I suggest that it it can inform uh, the value of of this kind of project because a couple of the factors... Sorry, Justice Karakasanis. No, no, finish your answer. A couple of the items that the court noted in... in, in, uh, in Ahmed and Williams, are the seriousness of the offense being investigated and the availability of other techniques. Nobody will, it's gained said that this is obviously a serious issue, juvenile prostitution, especially those who traffic in juvenile uh, people. Uh, but if you're examining the legality of a, of a system or a project that in fact, according to the best evidence we have, simply does not achieve assisting the targets of the project, the the young girls, as those two authors suggest. And they work in the field of assisting youth, vulnerable youth. They say it's not proper. So when you do have, and no system is great, obviously, unfortunately, but when you have two systems, one that does not infringe uh, privacy rights and does not random virtue test, and another one which does, but, but as well does not meet its objective, it seems quite clear in my respectful submission that there's something wrong uh, with uh, a conclusion that this space was uh, narrowly, precisely defined. So I'm just going to ask you, because in Ahmed, um, we did set out a number of factors that would assist, and not all of those factors simply go to whether there's reasonable suspicion. It also goes to the nature of the investigation, right. whether it's bona fide and what are the actual um, what, what are the actual investigative techniques engaged? So my, my question really is, how do those two things work together in the virtual context? We're all struggling how qualitatively it's different. So how do you approach it in a way that respects the underlying principles and applies those principles when you're talking about an online space, but also talking about a particular investigative technique? And, and I guess the focus has been, well, where's the reasonable suspicion on the space? But isn't it both? Isn't it what space are you targeting? And, is it, and, and how is it defined? And what is the investigative technique that's involved? And both of those together are necessary to determine whether it's sufficiently constrained. So I just wanted to get your views on how those two work together in a virtual space. Well, if I'm understanding uh, your question, Justice uh, uh my apologies, it, it might be trending towards the interpretation of what the Crown thought Justice Desaw was doing 
in the first in this in, in the second entrapment no. application. No, that's okay. not the question. All right. Okay, I'm sorry. No, I'm still focused on the space and whether there is this is not individual suspicion over the individual. We're not talking about that right. branch of entrapment. We're talking about what was called the bona fide investigation, right. and Ahmed says that includes reasonable suspicion over a uh, constrained space, a clearly defined space. So those two are, are two components. The bona fide investigation has investigative techniques that are particularly tailored in relation to an online space, and there's reasonable suspicion. How do they work together in a virtual context? Well, the, in this virtual context, the only, the only uh, connection would be, the, as Justice Brown pointed out at the beginning of our discussion, the ad itself. The ad. That's the connecting feature. Exactly. So, but again, and I'll just end with this. I've said, I know I said I'm going to end with this now four times, um, and I do want to give my colleagues uh, as much time as they, they, they want to, to make their submissions. But the ad itself... I would respectfully submit on all fours, doesn't advance the investigative technique and target the group to, the, to a level sufficient to make this a bona fide inquiry. And they're somewhat constrained by what they can say on these ads. Because as Justice Jamal pointed out inherently in his, in, or implicitly in his question to me, uh, these are not deep websites. These are sites that are traditionally and historically been used by, by sex, adult sex trade workers to, law, to, to lawfully offer their services. Uh, to people who are watching those ads. So in this context, I would say in this virtual space, those ads, uh, in this case, in Mr. Ramelson's case, certainly did not bridge the gap between uh, the definition of the space and it being properly targeted. Those are my respectful submissions. Uh, Mr. Bytensky wants to uh, pick up from there. Thank you very much. Chief Justice, Justices, I'm going to try to pick up on the answer to Justice Brown to your question um, because many of the questions that have been asked of Mr. Lukowski are overlapping. And respectfully, in terms of how we define the space and why, why is the space the Toronto uh, back pages as opposed to the specific ad, and, and respectfully, my answer to that is we have to go back to why, when we are dealing with the physical world, why this court sought to ensure that physical spaces were narrowly defined in the first place. And that is, the, the, the reason why that occurred is because you want to ensure that innocent persons aren't unduly targeted. In other words, that when you talk about a reasonable suspicion, those words have some meaning um, beyond the mere possibility. And in my factum, I, I use the example that if, you know, as a matter of logic, if you believe that drug dealing is occurring in a particular building stairwell, you necessarily also believe or suspect that some drug dealing is occurring within that same province because it's part of, the, of, a, of a larger sample size. So when we insisted, when this court insisted on a narrowly defined physical space, it was to... Um, by, by inference, to ensure that there was a sufficient prevalence of the activity that's targeted that was suspected to be occurring in that space. And so, Justice Karakatsanis, to answer your question, when we talk about the factors, 
I respectfully submit to you that there was one factor that you didn't uh, mention in the Ahmad and Williams case because it wasn't relevant to that discussion, at least not to the specific facts of those cases. And it's something that I comment on in my uh, written submissions. And, and respectfully, the, the um, factor of prevalence has to have some meaning. It is currently okay to say by a police officer, leaving aside whether it's objectively justifiable or not. That's a separate issue, which I'll come to if I have time. But a police officer can say, I reasonably suspect that this criminal activity is happening on back pages. And that could mean that I reasonably suspect that one person a year is targeting children on back pages, or it could mean that one person an hour is doing it. Because the words used to express your suspicion are the same. And with the greatest of respect, given what's at stake in the virtual world and given the enormous privacy costs that we pay by allowing randomly selected individuals to be targeted in a virtual space, I respectfully submit that one factor has to be, and the factor that brings everything together, is the suspected prevalence. And do you need hard facts and data? Maybe not, but it would help. And when we talk about Barnes, we didn't know the exact number of people in the mall. We didn't know the exact percentage. But we did know that some, I think the number was 30 or, excuse me, 40% of all drug trafficking in uh, in Vancouver for the year arose from Granville Mall. That was a figure that was before the court in the record and was significantly uh, relied upon. So the bottom line is whether you express it in real numbers or just in terms of relative terms, there has to be some finding which a court on a careful and meaningful review can make, that the prevalence of the activity is sufficiently high to justify the costs that come with the, uh, the flip side of providing opportunities in a private space. So is it not what uh, the trial judge, Justice Dessa, did in paragraph 24 of his uh, second decision? when he said that while juvenile prostitution was clearly occurring on the website, uh, that website was not a place dedicated to underage prostitution. And then he continued in saying that uh, the evidence indicates that uh, even within the escort section, the overwhelming majority of ads and traffic uh, did not relate to men seeking uh, sexual services from uh, underage uh, girls. So is it not an application of this uh, factor of prevalence that uh, Justice Dessa did? Well, Justice Dessa certainly did that to some extent. He relied on the information that was in the record before him. And, you know, I I just paused to note that Justice Dessa, of the four appellants, is the only one that considered the entrapment hearing post this court's release in Ahmad. So all the other appellants, including in my particular case, with my client, Uh, those analyses were done on the state of the law as they existed before Ahmad. So none of these factors were... In fact, I made specific attempts to reopen the entrapment hearing to argue the privacy rights of others, the violations, the very factors that this court identified. And the trial judge in my case said you couldn't couldn't do that. Those were irrelevant. So prevalence didn't matter to him. But yes, I agree with you, Justice Cote, that that was a factor. And I was going to, if I may, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I I, I agree with you. That is exactly what Justice DeSaw has done by inference, and I submit to all of you that that is the correct approach to take. It should be part of the analysis. And I I just want to use that to segue when we talk about experience. 
Mr. Lukowski talked about experiential. The Court of Appeal in, in the decision refers to just uh, Inspector Trong's experience in this area. But experience isn't limited to, to a focus on what is conveniently in support of your position. Experience has to take into account all the facts that are known or believed to the officer or suspected. Uh, we know that from all the reasonable suspicion cases from this court, that you can't ignore, you can't cherry-pick the, the facts that help you. But in this particular case, this was a long-standing project. And here, Justice Cote, I come back to Justice Cote's observation. Officer Trong, maybe not in the very first phase of the project, but certainly in all the latter phases, would have had the experience of the projects themselves when designing future ads. So when you, uh, we, we don't know the actual numbers for phase one. The only numbers we have are from the production order, which came out of phase three out of five phases that were involved in the overall length of this investigation. But what we do know is that over 1,000 individuals, discrete individuals, responded to the ads in a seven-day period in March of 2016. That is in the record. That is in a sealed exhibit. Every one of those numbers is known. If the police want to track down every single individual, they have that information now. So over seven days, 1,000, over 1,000 unique individuals responded, generating over 17,000 lines of text, and only 53 of them were arrested, so approximately 5%. 95% of the people that responded were not interested and did not engage for whatever reasons. And of the 53 that did, it is an absolutely open question about whether any of them were interested in juveniles to begin with. Yes, they all failed the virtue test. They all took up the opportunity when it was presented to them. But that does not logically equate to the suggestion that each and every one of them, or even a single one of them, was attending that back page website or clicking on that ad because they were looking for a juvenile. They failed the test, but that doesn't mean they had the intention. And there is, it's very telling in my respectful submission that not one, that from what we could observe, of the thousand responders that we have the text communications for said in response to the ad, by the way, I'm hoping you're under 18 or gave any other indication prior to the opportunity being presented to suggest that they were, in fact, looking for somebody underage. I take it, then, that you don't find the Court of Appeals' answer on that point um, persuasive, right? And, and I think this was the trial judge in the D.A.R.E. case as well, that, that individuals who are indifferent um, to the age of their escorts when responding to an offer um, were legitimate targets, according to the Court of Appeal, because that indifference would manifest itself in real-life encounters, thus contributing to the market for child prostitution? It's a very difficult question, Justice Brown. I, the short answer is no, I don't agree with the Court of Appeal, because in Morrison, this Court said, for very similar language, that the mens rea required for a luring offense is intention uh, or willful blindness, not recklessness and recklessness would not be sufficient. So when you turn it around into a reasonable suspicion type of analysis, remember, the whole, the whole analysis starts with, with a finding that the police have to have a reasonable suspicion that the criminal activity is occurring at a specific place. The Court of Appeal finally agreed with this argument that had been rejected at, at the trial level in my case. Child prosecution is a scourge. It is a social ill. It is despicable and disgraceful, and every single Canadian should be horrified by it. But it is not the same 
as saying that every man who engages with a child prostitute was looking for one and was intending to commit that offense. Okay, but let's let's go back to Barnes, right? Not everyone in Granville Mall is a drug trafficker, Agreed. right? I mean, there's the Hudson's Bay Company, there's movie theaters, there's a concert hall. Agreed. Right? And yet the court was not concerned, um, having decided that the police were investigating, were part of, you know, engaged in a bona fide investigation based on reasonable suspicion about the location, that the police may have offered opportunities to people who, absent that opportunity, would not have had the intention of buying drugs. I agree. Yeah. And, and, the, and the key is prevalence. Whether expressed that way or not, the key is ultimately, well, there's two keys. One is prevalence. Mm-hmm. So the, the courts, uh, it, with, you know, starting from the trial level all the way to this court in Barnes, were ultimately satisfied that there was sufficient prevalence of the criminal activity at that location to justify the infringement of the potential uh, rights of the innocents that would have been targeted, that presumably would have had no no ability or no interest in taking up the police on their opportunity. But what's also different, and respectfully, this is where the virtual world creates so many difficulties, and I respectfully submit, creates so many opportunities for this court to Uh, provide guidance, is the cost of an innocent person being approached at Granville Mall in the physical world is a much smaller societal price to pay than the cost of the innocents who are targeted and preserved here. We, I, I, I use this in the concluding portion of my factum, and I stand by it, and I, and I respectfully urge you to, to agree and, and take some, uh, some interest in the fact that this is virtual carding of a very large scale. When the police provide this opportunity, every single person, all 1,000-plus people in seven days, so if you can extrapolate that over the five phases of Project Raphael, you have thousands of people, every one of those people is either in a police database now, every one of their numbers, excuse me, every one of those numbers is now in a police database outed as somebody who was seeking an adult prostitute. Now that may not be the same as being outed as somebody seeking a child prostitute, but I suspect most Canadians that were looking for adult prostitutes between 2014 and 2018 would not want the police to know that would not want to share their interest in hiring an adult prostitute with the state. And yet every one of those numbers from, from one phase has been preserved in a production order, and it would not take much for the police to obtain production orders for the other phases. And by the way, I should add that in Mr. Jaffer's case, for Mr. Jaffer's phase, he was in the first phase of the project. For that phase, the police adds specified replies either by text or by email, and you have a copy of those ads that are in in the appellant's record for Mr. Jaffer. So anybody who uh, replied by email, that record also lives on forever, and that provides an additional source of information for the police. So they've carded all these individuals virtually, and you can foresee future projects where they might be able to access and cross-reference with other police databases and sources to gather all sorts of information about the general public that have no interest in the crime that you're actually investigating, that you're suspecting. Now, that may be a price worth paying. I'm not here to tell you that there can never be a a time where that price isn't worth paying because some offenses are too prevalent or too serious or some combination of those factors. But you have to take those factors into account. What's the threshold for prevalence? 5% you've said isn't enough. What is the threshold for prevalence? Well, that 
that that's the, the the threshold in in this case that we we have demonstrated for people who took up the opportunity justice jamal we don't know what the prevalence is of people who are intentionally looking for juveniles and that is in my respectful submission the standard the police have to meet because when they set out their project when they define it this court has said in, in Ahmad and other courts, this court said previously, that the targeted activity has to be the one that you suspect is, is occurring at that location. And Justice Brown, this is a long way to answer your original question about what the ad is. The police throughout say, we suspect that this activity is occurring on back page. It's not occurring at this ad, it's occurring on back pages. And it's occurring on the Toronto Escorts section of back pages. I have in my condensed book, I put the ads in, uh, the two ads that were used in Mr. Hanifa's case, and I included them in my condensed book. And in fact, not only is it the Toronto section of back pages, within the ad, and this is a tabs, or tab rather, 2A of my condensed book, if you, if you wish to look at now or, or, or later, but the location that's targeted is there were two separate ads, but one says Brampton, City of Toronto, Mississauga, Oakville, Toronto, Young Highway 7, York Region. And in the second ad, it said Brampton, City of Toronto, Highway 7 and Highway 27, Mississauga, Oakville, Toronto, York Region. This is a York Regional Police Force investigation supposedly targeting juvenile prostitution activity in York Region, yet their ads are targeted to users that would put in search terms such as Brampton, City of Toronto, Mississauga, Oakville, and so on. That's the GTA. That's not York Region. That's, that's I don't know, five, six, seven million people who live in those areas. And in my respectful submission, this is a very broad investigation. The, the, you can see the footer on the ads that talks about where, where the, the ad is housed, toronto.backpages.com and then female escorts, and so on. So in my respectful submission, it's a very broad targeting with, um, and, and it's not 5%, it's 5% who, did, who failed the virtue test. So Justice Cazare, if I can respond to your question uh, originally, that you asked Mr. Litkowski about the words were targeted. I think if you were to look at the transcripts of Officer Trong's testimony in the different cases, he uses different expressions. I, 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 I don't believe that the portion you quoted from in your original quote uh, is exactly the same as he testified in all the cases because he was cross-examined different times. It's not like every counsel here had an opportunity to cross him within the same proceeding at the same time. And the evidence uh, emerged slightly differently, I believe, between the cases, although the record from the Hanifa case, my case, was used and filed. The transcripts were filed and in some of the later cases, I believe, both for Mr. Dare and Mr. Ramelson. But when I cross-examined Inspector Trong, and I believe Mr. Ali, when he cross-examined in the Jaffer case, uh, in both uh, occasions, Officer Trong confirmed that the words that were selected were not designed, they were, they were not code for underage. I appreciate uh, you know, Justice Brown, Justice Cassare, you, you both said the same thing in terms of, you know, he said that these words were, intent, were, you know, he thought that they might signal to somebody that this could be somebody younger. And, and younger is a, is, a, is, a, is a really non-specific term as well, because younger, at least for me anyways, is somebody a lot older than 18. But 
At the end of the day, when he says, and he says this directly in my quote, this in my condensed book, I was intending for the words that I used in my ads to look like other ads that were in the back pages, escort section. I didn't want it to stick out like a police ad. I wanted people to think that this was just another ad. And he agreed also that th- there was no known code for underage. And uh, as I said, it, it makes perfect, perfect sense, because if there was a code, the, the pimps who, pros- who prostitute these young juveniles would be caught. Because if you put words that, that signify, look, I have an underage girl here, you're inviting the police to come and raid you or to otherwise to take investigative steps, which is bad for your business. So they don't use code. And here is where I respectfully submit the threshold of reasonable suspicion has to have some teeth. When this court says in Ahmad at paragraph 30 that you have to, um, excuse me, when you need objectively discernible facts and not simply deference to police-stated suspicions. That's your words, paragraph 30 of, uh, of Ahmad, and earlier cases such as Chehel and, and so on, where this court repeatedly speaks about the need for exacting curial scrutiny. All we have here is the officer saying, I believe men were going to back page to intentionally find girls. Um, and he says it as part of an answer. You have to read the entire answer. The court he, of appeal. You know, in fairness, in fairness, I'm over here. Yes, in sir. fairness, in your case, yes, he spoke of children. Yes, young girls or children. Yes, prostituted children. He, that was his when he was asked specifically, "Why did you pick those words?" That's right. He wasn't just. It wasn't just a, a, an appeal to youth in some kind of non-specific way. It was speaking to prostituted children on the basis of his training and years of experience. I mean, are we to, were to ignore that? No, you're not. But you need to look at it uh, with the exacting curial scrutiny that prior cases have, have required. And I respectfully submit that that didn't happen. This was ultimately an experience... As I said, it's, it's more than just saying I've done this for a long time. Officer Trong spoke to many prostitutes. He dealt with many prostitutes. He spoke with many uh, community agencies. He listed all the people that he spoke with as part of gaining his experience. And the Court of Appeal repeated every one of them. But the one group of people that he didn't speak to, that's not on that list, is consumers of, 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 of prostitutes. He didn't say, I interviewed hundreds of people that uh, were so-called Johns, they were so-called consumers, and they tell me that they go to back pages to find underage girls. There is none of that. What there is, I I accept that he says that he picked those words because he thought that they might be appealing to somebody. He did say that, those, those words came out of his mouth, but earlier he says, I believe that, ch- that people were going to Backpage to, to try to find underage girls. He says that because, I mean, it's part of a large answer where, he, where he's asked in chief, and, and this is in the Hanifa case, and, I've, and I put it in my condensed book and in my factum, um, where he's asked, why did you design the project this way? And he goes on to list, well, you know, I knew there were people going to Backpages to look for adults, 
and I knew that there were people going to back pages to look for for adults. But if they got kids, they they would you know they might pursue that. And then I knew that there were some people that were going to back pages to look uh, for ki- for adults that wouldn't pursue kids. And then I knew that there were some people that were going to back pages that were looking for kids. He listed all the logical possibilities of anybody who was going to back pages might have. He didn't say one was more prevalent than the other. He didn't say that. In my experience, this is what happens. He simply listed all the possible possibilities. And within them, one of them is, is, is something to say that uh, some men were going there to, to look for children. So this is where the need for some objectivity comes in. When the only foundation, and the Court of Appeal quotes this line in saying he suspected that men were going there. When the only foundation is part of a longer answer, which lists all the logical possibilities, and when he's directly asked, do you have statistics, not just him, you go to lots of conferences, do you ever hear statistics presented at these conferences, does anybody else tell you any of these things? And he continually says, no, 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 he doesn't have anything. And respectfully, um, when you take it with the objective evidence about how few people actually responded, and finally... And I submit to you also a, a very relevant consideration, which the Court of Appeal, I, I submit, didn't, um, didn't get right, is I, I ask rhetorically, I've asked rhetorically at the Court of Appeal, I ask rhetorically again, if somebody was interested in finding a juvenile on back pages, how would you find one? We have statistics. The, the, the statistics are there. The statistics are in the condensed book, at least the statistics to the extent that Officer Trong believed them to be accurate and even put them in his own expert report. So if, it's, if these statistics are accurate, you would have to randomly pick ads once for like every day for like six years before you actually got an actual juvenile based on the numbers that I came up with. So, so, so you say there's, there's, they can't get around this by using a code, you say, because, because there's no code for identifying juveniles on Backpage because the people who place those ads would be quickly caught. Um, one of the considerations that, that we identified in, in Ahmed was whether there's a, a, a less intrusive way of doing this. So... How else could the police design the ads to limit the target audience? So the first part of my answer, Justice Brown, is that some places are simply too wide to be properly defined. So that it may be that you can't, and that's an acceptable answer with respect. But if, but if you're asking me how could they have done it, they could have put a picture of a 14-year-old. Without, you know... You could have put a picture of a 14-year-old. So change the picture and that would be enough? Well, I, I, I say no because I say the area is too wide to begin with. Right, no, no, but, but, but let's, but if you, let's but put if that you aside. Right, if you disagree with me. I mean, the only evidence was that you, the, in the ads it says posters age and it says 18. And it says, you know, the program wouldn't accept anything below 18. I, that, that's, that's the evidence. Well, what the officer also said, and I, I put to him in my cross-examination, I said, what if you just put I'm 15 in the body of the ad? And he said, oh, I never thought of that. I don't know what happened. Okay? So there's no evidence that you can't do that. It might get flagged. I mean, I don't know. You might want to get Backpage to cooperate with you and say, we're doing this thing, an operation. We want you to cooperate. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they would. Put it right in the body of the ad so there is no dispute. And there is no cat and mouse and bait and switch. And um, 
Put a picture of a 14-year-old whose face is turned the other way so that her privacy is not. Don't put a 30-year-old police officer in there. Who's going to volunteer their 14-year-old for that photo? Well, you can get a stock image of lots of people, I suspect, online that are clearly children that are not identifiable. Um, in my respectful submission... I mean, that, that sounds like you're putting a giant red flag on saying, you know, police. <laughs> well, yes, maybe. But if you're trying to actually get the people that are interested in that, then that's... We've got to be the way you do it, or I mean, or you, but but you won't because you've just put a giant red flag on it. Can you yeah. can you explain to me why the giant red flag? I, I didn't understand your your answer about putting fifteen in the body of the ad. Didn't you ask? Didn't you ask uh, Detective Trong about putting? I think you actually used sixteen yes. in your. And you said, "What? Why didn't you put that in?" And then didn't he say, "Well, the on the back page." it would default and he would, the person wouldn't be able to proceed any further. So he was kind of constrained by the, the back page. Was that, um, have I got that wrong? I mean, I remember there was also a back and forth between the two of you about back page not respecting its own disclaimers. And, and you know, you tried to say, well, you could always, why don't you contact back page? Right. And then he said, well, you know, back page doesn't respect its own rules. So, you know, what, yeah. what was he supposed to do? Well, Backpage is out of business now, and there's going to be some other Backpage now that's going to be in, in its place. Um, I, I, I believe I have it right, and, and, and I apologize if I don't. I'm also very mindful of my time. I want to make sure Ms. Vandebeek has an opportunity to make some submissions. But um, ultimately, um, the, the way I understood it is there's a drop-down menu where it says posters age. That appears in the ad. That's the one you can't go below 18. Uh, I, the words that you choose, like when you write uh, in the body ad, whatever you write, you know, the rates for the half hour and so on, you can write whatever you want. It might set off some flags, and it certainly would set off the giant big red flag to users that this could be a police officer. I, I accept that. But ultimately, my, my point is that if you put it in black and white like that, then you know you're targeting the right audience. And the op- the, the odds of finding an innocent person or having somebody who's really not interested respond goes significantly down. And when that happens, the, the price we pay, the virtual price we pay that I've talked about, is ameliorated because you don't have to worry about all the costs on the other side of the ledger or the other side of the, of the balance. And uh, it, I can see that it's a very delicate situation. We want to protect children, but vice probes are significantly more successful than going after random people that may or may not have ever had any intentions. I apologize for, for taking well, the time. I thought, I thought there was a finding that the vice probe isn't effective. In I, fact, it's terribly ineffective. And that really, see, I'm listening to this, and we're in a day and age where, unfortunately, the Internet is being used uh, to a very large extent. I think you started off your submission saying how terrible this crime is, how many juveniles and are, are being, you know, you know, they're being engaged in sex trade, and there's all kinds of evidence here that they often are the ones that are destitute, marginalized, etc. They're being just, um, you know, they're, they're just being used as, as pieces of property in effect. So I'm hearing all this from you, how terrible this is, but then I'm hearing from you, oh, we've got to be worried about, because the people who got onto this and chose not to do this, 
oh, their names will be in the police databank, as if the police have nothing better to do than start going after these thousands of people that you say didn't take up the offer. And I guess my point is this. We are in 2022. This is a huge crime. It's a dangerous crime. It's happening on a regular and persistent basis. The police can't even try to keep on top of it. But you're sitting, standing there, in effect, saying, well, this wasn't any good because, you know, we, we can't show that there were really a lot of people that were involved in this back page or whatever, whatever. You're giving us all this stuff. And I guess my real question to you, isn't there a point in time where we have to give the police the tools they need constitutionally to try and deal with a horrific crime that is going on on a regular and persistent basis, and if that means possibly interfering with someone's privacy interests, and you create this example, oh, the police will track down all these people, which I think is nonsense, uh, maybe there's a time that we have to say, you know what, we've got to give them a little leeway. Just like Chief Justice Lemaire gave leeway for the Granville Mall six blocks where there would have been tens of thousands of people going in that area every day. And he said, you know, you can pick any one of them because there's drug trafficking going on. And let's look at the drug trafficking that would have been going on there that the police were looking for. It wouldn't have been pounds of cocaine, I don't think. They would have been approaching people to buy marijuana or, you know, a few grams of cocaine or whatever. So how do we compare that with respect to the nature of this kind of crime? You, you are effectively, it seems to me, trying to just bind the hands of the police from doing anything, uh, even though they've tried to narrow this as much as possible. Well, I, I, I don't have much time, so I, I don't have a, an ability to give a long answer. But I've I don't think up, you have enough time because you don't have an answer. Well, with, res- with respect, all there, there are many very serious um, crimes in our society that we choose to impose constitutional limits on the police for. This is a, it, it, pretty much every crime involves a matter of balancing in terms of giving police powers, whether they're drug investigations or otherwise. So it's a balancing exercise. My, my submission is that the balancing should be conducted a certain way and certain factors uh, should be taken into account. Justice Maldaver, I, I don't back away from the fact that juvenile prostitution is a very serious crime, uh, but it's committed primarily by pimps and people who aren't targeted through this investigation. And if the goal is to save young girls, you'll do more of them with respect by vice probes, and the article that Mr. Lukowski gave you says that. Um, so, so the Court of Appeal got it wrong when they said that the vice probes, based on the evidence of the officers, doesn't come anywhere close to being able to deal with this. The vice probe, uh, Justice Maldaver, took over 30 girls off the street. There's no evidence that a single girl has been spared as a result of the hundreds of arrests that have happened in Project Raphael. Well, that's kind of an impossible thing to say because, you know, you're trying to prove a negative, I guess. True, but... I'm, I'm not saying it. Uh, other authors have said it. That's, that's, I'm repeating. This goes to the, if you're willing to do it, you're willing to do it. There's a lot of said here, oh, they, they didn't intend this. They didn't, this wasn't their purpose. But if they're willing to do it, they'll find it. Believe me. Well. All right, thank you. Your time is up, but I will, uh, I will give you five minutes. Thank you, Chief Justice. So I only wanted to make um, two brief points that really relate to the factual circumstances of Mr. Jaffer. 
Because when I say that Mr. Jaffer's case in particular demonstrates that he is sort of an example of a person who was random virtue tested or who fell through the cracks, um, if this court agrees with the Court of Appeals approach that there was sufficient reasonable suspicion. And I say that because, you know, the facts of Jaffer are quite unique. He's 22 years old, which is, you know, not a big gap in the age range. He's no prior criminal record. He's a straight-A student at um, the University of Toronto. And I think the three you know, important factors, or the two most important factors, or three, I would say, is that the, um, the records from the phone after, that were discovered after um, the investigation showed that Mr. Jaffer was not looking to engage with a minor. The post-conviction phallometric testing proved that Mr. Jaffer was not interested in minors. And so, so those, and then there's also this undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome that's playing around in the background. And so what I say, Mr. Jaffer's case, it's just an illustrative example that if, you know, the suspicion is just based on the website and there's nothing that's asked about the individual, then a person like Mr. Jaffer, who we know was not interested in minors and who wasn't trolling the internet, to you know, find a minor escort to have sex with, he essentially falls through the cracks and it's too bad, no remedy for him. And I would say this sort of raises two problems that relate to the, the case law. One, it endorses um, the police ability to manufacture crime because but for this ad, Mr. Jaffer would not have fallen you know into this situation that he's in. So, but for the police investigation, he would not be in this situation. And then two, to the extent that any vulnerabilities might have for Mr. Jaffer or for other people who end up on these sites, so other people who have difficulty forming relationships because of whatever, you know, it could be the Asperger syndrome or other personal backgrounds, those vulnerabilities are not considered in any aspect of the test because it's considered from the police perspective. So in my submission, his case just sort of shows an example of the problems that can happen when you're in a virtual realm, and we just delineate regional suspicion based on the, um, the location and not nothing related to the person. The, the, the Crown says, in, I'm over here, the oh, Crown says that your arguments on vulnerability fall flat because there's nothing that objectively points to inducement in the case of Mr. Jafar. So I'd like your thoughts on that. And they also say that the the mode of analysis suggested in Mac and the cases in, in Ahmed is, is to focus on the effect of the p- police conduct rather than the accused state of mind. I'm, I'm just wondering where where we're supposed to fit Mr. Jaffer's vulnerabilities into the analysis. And, and so that, that's what I think this case, the problem this case highlights, because, you know, if you had considered, if, you know, the Court of Appeal is correct, that reasonable suspicion is just based on the place, then on the second branch of Mac, there is no space for Mr. Jaffer, because the way the test is framed, you know, requires it to look at things that the police knew ahead of time. And I don't, I'm not faulting the police. They didn't know. They didn't know that about anybody, but that's the risk that happens with the virtual realm because they didn't engage in any, you know, pre-questioning in relation to Mr. Jaffer. Um, So 
I agree with the Crown that the test as it's formatted now doesn't consider these vulnerabilities, but I think that that's a problem with virtual space and with this type of investigation. So that exa that's exactly sort of my point. Doesn't it really suggest that it's a mitigating factor in sentence? Because we are concerned not with an absence of uh, culpability, but with, with uh, uh, a remedy for abusive process by the state. It's because of that, that is the, the focus, because that is the nature of the remedy that is uh, in issue. So the individual's uh, mitigating circumstances uh, really aren't, don't go to whether the state misconduct, which is necessarily the focus of the test, but it may be relevant at another stage. It may be relevant at the sentencing, but my submission would be is that, you know, if, if these vulnerabilities are sort of the driving factor about why there may be more prevalence of these types of people with these vulnerabilities on the website, then that would also go to this aspect of the test. Or if it goes to, you know, why they were dealing with the police in this way, that would also go to whether or not there's been an abusive process. And I would just say, you know, the test right now is, you know, for, I guess, looking from the police perspective, but if at the end of the day, it's capturing a group of people that have vulnerabilities and we know about that in the end, how is society, you know, going to see, how is society going to have confidence in that sort of system? All right. Thank you Thank very you. much. The court will take its morning break at 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Ms. Doherty. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, in the respondent's submission, the Court of Appeal got it right. The appellants were not entrapped. Applying the framework that this court recently reaffirmed in Ahmad, the Court of Appeal concluded that the police in these cases had the requisite reasonable suspicion that the targeted criminal conduct was occurring in the defined location of investigative interest, the escort section of the adult subsection of Backpage.com. They further did nothing that amounted to an improper inducement. Uh, in our submissions this morning, I'm going to address you on the reasonable suspicion issues, uh, in particular that the Court of Appeal did what this court directed in RV Ahmad, to assess whether the police conduct amounted to a bona fide investigation. Uh, there's no real issue in my submission that the police were motivated by a legitimate uh, investigative purpose. So I'll focus my submissions on two points uh, this morning. First relates to the reasonable suspicion threshold. Uh, what's required by it, what's required to meet that standard in terms of material or evidence, uh, and how that standard was met here. Uh, second, I'll turn to the Court of Appeals consideration of the tailoring of the location of investigative interest and whether considering the Ahmad factors, the police technique uh, avoided random virtue testing. Uh, subject to any questions on the inducement front, uh, if there are any, I'll leave those to my colleague, Ms. Feinberg, to address at the end of our uh, submissions. The first issue, as I said, that I want to address the court on uh, relates to the Court of Appeals conclusion that the police here had the requisite reasonable suspicion that the targeted criminal conduct was occurring in the targeted location, the escort section of Backpage. Uh, in terms of what a reasonable suspicion requires, 
In Ahmad, this court recently reaffirmed the application of the reasonable suspicion standard as the threshold to meet to avoid an entrapment finding. Police must have a reasonable suspicion that a particular individual is engaged in the targeted criminal conduct or that the targeted criminal conduct is occurring in a specifically targeted area. Reasonable suspicion is a robust standard. It's not a mere hunch. And the appellate authorities have found that the standard requires something more than a mere suspicion and something less than a belief based on reasonable and probable grounds. It's assessed based on a consideration of the totality of the circumstances, based on objectively discernible facts, and is subject to independent and rigorous judicial scrutiny. A, a majority of this court commented on how well suited this standard is to the entrapment inquiry in the majority's decision in Ahmad. Uh, the court talks about in every context, the reasonable suspicion standard ensures courts can conduct meaningful judicial review of what police knew at the time the opportunity uh, was provided. And further, the court went on to rely on Justice Doherty's decision in Simpson, where he made the point that a reasonable suspicion standard is necessary where there is a fundamental need to balance society's interest in the deten detection pardon me, and punishment of crime with its interest in maintaining individual freedom. A careful balancing of interests is as relevant in entrapment as, as it is in the warrantless search and detention context that was being addressed uh, in Simpson. The appellant's complaints that the Court of Appeal got it wrong and that there was no reasonable suspicion here, in my submission, are based on an approach to the reasonable suspicion standard that runs counter to these principles. And in so doing, the appellant's interpretation of the reasonable suspicion requirement would render the threshold ill-suited to the careful balancing of competing interests that is demanded in the entrapment analysis. The appellant Hanifa argues that a reasonable suspicion requires that the police establish a certain proportion or amount of the target criminal conduct is actually occurring in the targeted location for there to be a reasonable suspicion. Ms. In my Doherty, submission, that... Oh, pardon me. Ms. Doherty, you, you define yes. the location without reference to the language of the specific ad. You're defining it more broadly as being the escort section of the website. Why would it be inappropriate to... to I mean, if that's your position, to look at the specific language in the ad in terms of defining what the location is? So by no means am I saying the ad is, is irrelevant, Justice Jamal. Um, I'm taking my lead from Justice Jurians. That's what he uh, defined the location as here. So in my submission on the Court of Appeals analysis, the escort subsection of the adult subsection of Backpage is the equivalent of the mall from Barnes. And the ad is the first investigative step taken in furtherance of their investigation of that location. Or is the, ad a, is the ad a store in the mall, a little boutique store in the sure. mall? For sure. It's, um, I mean, they don't, they don't have a reasonable suspicion to take your, um, uh, your phrasing, Justice Moldaver. They don't have a reasonable suspicion that the targeted criminal conduct is going on in a little store that the police set up in the mall. They're using the little store in the mall to investigate the suspected criminal activity that they already, before they set up, suspect is going on there. Ms. Doherty. Not, oh, oh yes. sorry. I'll, I'll let you finish your thought. I'm sure what you were going to say is much more important, Justice Kassir. I'm happy to answer your question. Uh, it's unlikely. I, I was going to ask how you, 
how you square your position and the Court of Appeals' position with what was said in Ahmed about entire websites not usually qualifying mm-hmm. as a as a sufficiently particularized place to support reasonable suspicion. And I have in mind the possibility that, I mean, in this case, we have a section of a website, and I appreciate that that's a nuance there. But there was nothing stopping Backpage creating a freestanding website. And I'd be hard-pressed to see how your argument would be different if that was the case. So what what do you propose we do without that language in Ahmed? If there was just a, a website of sort of general interest where you would find all sorts of things for sale and the police were saying including uh, criminal activity, is that is that the proposition? Well, no. I, w- okay. I, I, I guess the idea is if you had something so general, mm-hmm. uh, although one might think that Craigslist could qualify, mm-hmm. but if you had something... Um, so general, Ahmed suggests it's a, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of an entire website. So what about an entire website devoted to child prostitution? I mean, you know, the, sure. the, this, this, uh, I'm just wondering to what extent the way in which we imagine how information on the Internet is divided up is, is helpful at all to determining reasonable suspicion. In my submission, Justice Kassir, it's it's a strength of the Mac Ahmad uh, framework that we have to take each of these individual uh, instances on their own particular facts and assess all of the circumstances. So when we have, and, and I took the wording from Ahmad saying, you know, start from the proposition, you know, parties and police, that if you're targeting something that's a full website, that may very well be too broad. So make sure this tailoring idea is on your mind from the time you're creating your investigative uh, plan. There are definitely places on the internet that are exclusively devoted to particular kinds of criminal conduct. Um, But to call back to a question that Justice Jamal asked earlier, the police have a responsibility to not just act in those areas that are overtly dedicated to a particular kind of crime. Because unfortunately, crimes like child prostitution are occurring in other areas where other types of conduct are going on. So in my submission, we need to take each particular uh, circumstance on its own facts. And the fact that a website was expressly dedicated to internet child sexual exploitation. You know, one of these sites where people are offering up their own children and things like that for people to exploit. Uh, That would be a very different set of facts. And in terms of the privacy uh, intrusion that may be permissible, the expanded scope that may be permissible when you're dealing with something that is exclusively that type of criminal conduct may be more warranted versus if you're looking for someone who's, you know, pirating uh, computer games or something like that, that may not justify, you know, taking on huge swaths of uh, gamer chat rooms or things like that, where there's all kinds of legitimate expressive activity and communicative activity going on. I think there's a problem when courts seek to frame tests in terms of technology Technology, by its nature, changes, particularly in the modern era, with remarkable rapidity. If our tests are framed in terms of purposes, then I think the purpose 
then you put that in the context of the particular technology. But to frame the test in terms of the technology is to apply an artificiality to it which renders it uh, difficult to apply as technology changes and may even render it obsolete. I I completely agree, Justice Rowe, that that kind of purposeful or purposive approach is is geared to last or stand the test of time more so than going particular application by particular application. Because as my friend, Mr. Batinsky already noted, we're here arguing about the police investigation of a website that no longer exists. So I definitely take your point in terms of technology changing, but that's why I say it's a strength of the present approach on a mod that you're looking not at sort of particular mechanics of a particular website, but you're looking at, you know, what have the police done to tailor? What is the kind of, you know, expression or activity that are going on in these places? Because those are considerations that may have very different applications depending on the particular uh, technological circumstance that you're considering, but they're principles that can apply uh, across the board. Well, I was going to ask you about another principle, and that mm-hmm. is about virtue testing. And sure. I'd appreciate your response to the argument that was made earlier that um, if, uh, if, you're tar- if the police are targeting those who are indifferent mm-hmm. as to the age, um, then is that virtue testing or is there another answer for that? I don't believe that's random virtue testing, Justice Krakatsanis, and I, uh, I wholly adopt Justice Durian's, uh comments on this point in terms of the police are dedicating their uh, investigative efforts here towards uh, trying to eliminate the demand uh, for child prostitution. Uh, don't they, we have, that, do do we not have to look at what the elements of the offense are? And sure. And if, if it requires uh, um, uh, intention or knowledge or if it doesn't go to recklessness, is that not relevant? In my submission, Justice Krakatsan, is when we're thinking about sort of what would happen if this wasn't a police officer and this was an actual uh, child that the person was encountering. What the court is talking about in terms of indifference there is indifference in that face-to-face interaction, which, of course, the whole purpose of the luring provisions is to avoid or to ensure that that kind of face-to-face, the Uh, accused person coming face to face with a potential child who could be sexually exploited. The whole purpose of the child luring provisions is to avoid that ever happening. But what I take the Court of Appeal to be referring to as indifference there is a person who is face to face presented with a child who will either see it in his interest not to ask any questions about age or to just say, I'm not really fussed about age myself and proceed uh, ahead to sexually abuse the child. So when we're talking about who the de- what the sources of demand are for the child prostitution um, victims, we have folks who go on uh, and intend exactly that day to be engaging a child prostitute. But we also have these folks who fall into what Justice Jurians calls that indifference category. And in my submission, if we take it uh, back to sort of the Barnes foundational principles on reasonable suspicion in a location. We weren't concerned in Barnes about the rationale why the person went to the mall that day. I mean, Justice Brown made a comment like this similar. There's all kinds of things people could have been going to the mall uh, that day in Barnes to look into. But the fact that when they are in that place where the police suspect the targeted criminal activity is going on, they're offered an opportunity to commit that offense and they do it. 
in my submission that they were uh, going to the mall to go to Sears as opposed to to buy some marijuana or whatever the drug was is not uh, doesn't render the police conduct impermissible virtue testing because of that uh, suspicion they have about the police. But Ms. Duarte, um, on this reasonable suspicion, at paragraph 72, the Ontario Court of Appeals said that it would not be enough if police police uh, had reasonable suspicion only that uh, underage persons were being sold on mm-hmm. back page to unwitting, unwitting customers. And the Court of Appeals says the police had to have reasonable suspicion that customers were going onto back page uh, to obtain sexual services from underage people. Mm-hmm. So what you said about the Granville Mall, that it's not necessary to show that uh, somebody was going there to buy drugs, they could have been there for, uh, to go to Sears, seems to me to go Sears against, against, against uh, paragraph 72 of the Court of Appeal, because the Court of Appeal says you need to show there should be a reasonable suspicion that people are going de- on to back page to get that. And here it seems to me that Justice Dessa in his second decision came to different findings, that the evidence was the opposite, that uh, the, uh, the evidence was to the effect that people were not going on that uh, backpage.com to get uh, services from sexual services from underage people. What do you respond to that? So in my submission, you have to read that uh, earlier paragraph of the Court of Appeals Reasons as an add-on and not in conflict with the later discussion of willingness in the decision. So what the Court of Appeal, as I read it, is saying is we can't have a situation where all the police think is there's unwitting or unknowing uh, purchasing of, of child sex going on on this website. If that's the only thing they suspect is going on, then that's not enough. So here, based on Officer Chirong's uh, evidence, the court in my submission was satisfied that there was evidence that children were being bought and sold on this uh, particular website and that folks would be going there for that particular purpose. In addition to that, there are also a group of people who fall into this, didn't didn't go to the website for that purpose, but I'll take it if you're offering it, that Justice Durians is saying are also an additional uh, potential target group that feed the demand for child prostitution. And so it's not an overbroad definition of the place of investigation to also capture those people. So in my submission, it's the two paragraphs fee- add on to each other. They aren't uh, in conflict. In, in my submission, that would be my suggested reading of how those two paragraphs can be reconciled. Thank you. I wanted to say one more thing on my friend's uh, reasonable suspicion uh, submissions before I leave it. And it was on his, his point about sort of the overall proportionate or proportionate amount of the criminal conduct uh, that's going on in the particular place and the police sort of being able to show that uh, to be able to support a reasonable suspicion. And I just wanted to make two points on that before I leave it and go on to the material Uh, that you can base your reasonable suspicion on. Uh, The first point I wanted to make about that sort of a bright line approach is that it's quite uh, inconsistent with how this court has defined the contextual reasonable suspicion analysis uh, to date. It also has much more of an emphasis on the criminal conduct actually occurring, 
which of course you don't need to have ever seen a crime actually occur to reasonably suspect it's going to happen or it's going to happen in a particular place. Uh, you know, when we think about someone who gets a judicial authorization on a reasonable suspicion or a reasonable grounds to believe standard, it doesn't mean that their reasonable grounds to believe didn't exist because when they ultimately executed the warrant, they didn't find the thing they were looking for. It's we got to focus on what the officers knew at the time they're forming that suspicion or they're offering that opportunity and not on sort of what ultimately happens once they've acted on what they think is a uh, sufficient suspicion. And in my submission, that's a key tenant of the entrapment doctrine, focusing on the police conduct at the time the opportunity is offered. Just like it wouldn't lie to me to say, well, they must have had reasonable suspicion because look at all these people who they caught in this location. It doesn't fall to my friends to say, well, look at all these people they didn't. In my submission, we have to keep our focus on what the police uh, knew or believed to form their reasonable suspicion at the time the opportunity was offered. And that takes me to this issue of what the police are entitled to rely upon uh, to ground a reasonable suspicion in a particular circumstance, Justices. In my submission, the police must be able to rely on their training and investigative experience to ground a reasonable suspicion. This is not the same thing as meaning they need a basis that's not grounded in objectively discernible facts. Objectively discernible facts, in my submission, is not synonymous with uh, statistical analysis or something uh, of the like. And that's particularly significant in, the, in relation to these kind of offenses. When we think about the officer's evidence, which I'll, I'll talk about more when we get to the Ahmad factors in particular, but when the officer talks about how other investigative avenues are frustrated or difficult to successfully pursue in this area because of the realities of um, the location and the circumstances in which these kinds of offenses are occurring, really puts the police in a bit of a catch-22 situation, that they need to be able to show the fruits of these other investigative avenues to say, here's the number of prosecutions, here's the number of kids we know were trafficked on this website in this month, when the whole point of needing to adopt this investigative technique is to be able to more effectively investigate and ultimately prosecute the kinds of offenses uh, that are going on in this sort of location. On the final point on reasonable suspicion, I want to turn to why uh, or how that standard was met by the police in these cases. Uh, the officers in particular, Officer Truong, based on his experience and training, was well situated to assess the places and circumstances in which child prostitution was occurring and the role of Backpage in those activities. He wasn't acting on a mere uh, hunch. His evidence set out that training and experience, in particular, uh, where he was a police officer for some time. Uh, his, link, his evidence also linked or established a link between the escort section of Backpage and child prostitution that he was seeing occurring uh, in, his in his region. That evidence is summarized at paragraph 77 to 81 of the Court of Appeals uh, decision. Uh, in my submission, when you have the officer saying things like, he's unable to think of a single case in his unit or that his unit had encountered that involved a girl being sold online that didn't link to Backpage. 
in my submission, that's powerful evidence based on his experience investigating exactly these kinds of crimes that support, in my submission, more than a, a, a suspicion, but a reasonable suspicion that this kind of criminal conduct is going on in the targeted location. Ultimately, based on the evidence of Officer Truong, the trial judge in Ramelson accepted that virtually all of the online investigations involving juveniles had been linked to Backpage. And he further concluded that based on Officer Truong's ample and extensive experience, that the police had a reasonable, reasonable basis to believe that individuals were involved in the purchase of sexual services from juvenile prostitutes on Backpage. My so may I just interject here and say, so it doesn't, from the way you're approaching this, do you agree that prevalence is something that is important for the court to consider, but that you're arguing that there was prevalence through this particular evidence? And I guess I'd just like some comments on, in principle and in practice, um, what should the role of prevalence be? In my submission, it, it's, it proceeds from a false premise to say that we can really understand what the prevalence of any uh, particular crime is in a particular location like the uh, escort section of Backpage. In my submission, it's, it's very difficult. And that's why I use that sort of catch-22 phrase to say the police need to be able to assess that before they can take these kind of investigative actions. Am I saying that if you had one instance of any crime in a particular location, that's going to found a reasonable suspicion? No. Is it going to be 100 instances in every case? No. In my submission, those kind of thresholds are very difficult to apply across the board. But in my submission, there could be circumstances where, you know, you have one instance of theft of meat from the grocery store and you want to be, you know, offering every person who comes in an opportunity to engage in that criminal conduct. That's probably not going to be um, support a reasonable suspicion. But do, do we consider the seriousness of the offense as well and the impact on the individual, presumably? I mean, it's not just of frequency. It's how serious this would be for the, the affected individual. Of course. And that's a that's a factor. And I'll, I'll turn to that in a moment, Justice Jamal, when I get to the Ahmad factors. But in my submission, prevalence is a more a thorny uh, topic to even pin down to say we have an understanding of X number of people are in this particular location at a time and Y number of people are engaging in the targeted criminal conduct. The I, idea I, that I, that would be yeah, me. talking about prevalence. There's another way to come at it. I mean, people think about statistical analyses. I mean, that's because maybe we did stats or did a little sociology in university or whatever. But it reminds me of fishing for some reason. And um, I'm not a particularly good fisherman, but I've been out with some very capable fishermen. And they'll say, no, 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 no. If you go down that corner of the lake today, you won't get a thing. It's just, you know, it's the weather conditions, it's the temperature, the water, etc. If we go up here, that's where we're going to find the fish today, right? And, and it's a combination of experience and, 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 and expertise, maybe a little intuition, but it's, it, is, it, it, it lacks scientific precision, and yet it can have a high degree of reliability, and when I look at the evidence of Officer Trong, what I see is someone who has committed themselves to understanding these phenomena 
in a way that's like the fisherman who says, no, 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 if, if, if you fish up here, you, you'll, you'll catch them today, right? Because I know how this works. First of all, I refuse to acknowledge that you don't have skills as a fisherman, Justice Rowe. But I, I take your point, and I think it's exactly right. No, he's he's right. Can, oh no, <laughs> that I think you could have. Uh, that's exactly what the officer is doing here. Is he's saying, "Look, I'm talking to the girls and women who are involved in this exact industry, and even the folks who he's talking to who aren't juvenile prostitutes at the time, but who are talking to him about their experiences since entering the prostitution." realm when they were children are all tying back to Backpage. So they have that, uh, that experiential basis to say, this isn't just a hunch. I'm not picking out this, reb- this website name at random or this fishing spot at random. I'm picking out this spot because that's what I'm hearing from my you know, immersion in this culture, that that's where this kind of activity is going on. And so to say that... Um, you know, the overall amount of child luring that's going on on the internet, even assuming we could understand that figure, you know, this is only a proportion of that, or this is this number in terms of the statistical analysis, my submission doesn't really assist in evaluating whether the police had that reasonable suspicion basis to be targeting this location in the first place. From there, Justices, I want to take you through the Court of Appeals consideration uh, of the factors in deciding whether the location is sufficiently tailored. Can I just can I just kind of pull you back on that for a second? Sure. Because you referred to the Ahmed factors, and I just, I, I mean, I don't know if this is like a public service announcement, but those are not intended as a list of factors that have to be gone through in every case. They're, they're sure. expressly stated as non-exhaustive. They're also expressly stated as permissive, right? And, and, and that makes sense it, it, because it was talking about virtual space. Sure. And, and you have to account for the multiplicitous nature of, of, um, of online space. There's all kinds of spaces. So I just, I just want to make clear that, that Her Majesty is understanding that that's just not a list of factors that you balance off. This way is for, this way sure. is against. It's, it's not like Grant. No, I, 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 okay. I, I'll let her know that that's definitely not the case. Pass but, it on. Um, Thank you. I, uh, in my submission, it is still a helpful roadmap. And I, I don't understand Justice Durian's to have, you know, or understood the test as here's the only things I can look at and I need to look at all of them and come to a conclusion. And I don't understand him to have taken that kind of formulaic approach. But in my submission, he has sort of picked up what this court put down in a mod and said, okay, here's the sort of structure of the analysis that I want to go through. So in my submission, it, it is helpful to look at his consideration of the factors that were highlighted uh, in a mod, because in my submission, it really demonstrates that the Court of Appeal has done exactly what this court said to do in a mod, which is you need to look at all of the circumstances. You got to be careful especially when you're dealing with a virtual location that there isn't hasn't been a kind of over overbroad or not insufficient tailoring and here's some factors that you could look at that may or may not be uh, of assistance or uh, of particular import in your exact case Um, the first one I want to talk about is what Justice Jamal previously mentioned and that's the seriousness of the criminal activity that's under uh, investigation The Court of Appeal concluded that this consideration weighed heavily in favor of finding that Project Raphael did not amount to random virtue testing 
and in my submission, justifiably so. Uh, the societal ills associated with the scourge of child sexual exploitation cannot be uh, overstated. This court has spoken on them frequently and often. Uh, Project Raphael was aimed at reducing the demand for sexual services from juveniles in York Region. Officer Truong's evidence outlined the various vulnerabilities that characterized the juveniles who were sold on Backpage. Many were from broken homes, many were assaulted, exploited, threatened, both by pimps and customers, and all were victims of some form of exploitation. My submission, this is extremely serious criminal conduct that has uh, horrific consequences, both for the individual and at a societal level. So my submission, the Court of Appeal was right to place a significant weight on this factor. Again, taking all of the factors uh, into consideration at the same time. The second consideration I wanted to touch on is the difficulty in investigating the criminal activity uh, that's been targeted. Uh, this court in Ahmad determined that the availability of other less invasive investigative techniques was relevant to the determination of whether a virtual space was sufficiently tailored to support a reasonable suspicion that the targeted criminal conduct was occurring in that location. Uh, Officer Truong canvassed the multifaceted challenges that investigations into juveniles uh, selling sexual services face. Uh, for instance, these are transactions that occur mostly in private, in things like hotel rooms like we had here. And uh, they involve young children who are not likely to report, uh, sometimes out of fear of the folks who are around them, sometimes out of fear of the police. So uh, Officer Truong... Uh, both canvassed those difficulties and also testified that alternative techniques like the vice probes or strategies that were focused on attempts to rescue juveniles through uh, focusing on pimps did not stop the demand for child sex. In light of this factual backdrop, the Court of Appeal concluded that there was no less intrusive investigative techniques that targeted the criminal conduct at issue. The Court of Appeal determined that this factor was deserving of weight in evaluating whether the police had the required reasonable suspicion. The court recognized that uh, in our modern world, technology aids in the commission of crime. And so in order to investigate and detect those crimes, police must also make use of technology. This court made that same observation in Ahmad. And in my submission, that's particularly uh, apt or important when we're talking about or has particular relevance when we're talking about this kind of offense. The child luring offenses were designed to close the cyberspace door long before any individual actually has an opportunity to commit uh, either a, a sexual offense online or a hands-on sexual offense against a child. So in my submission, when we think about the design of these provisions being exactly for you know, criminalizing this kind of online conduct, as well as providing the police with the ability to do exactly what they did here, which is mobilize the anonymity of the internet against these kind of uh, societal ills that are going on there. In my yeah. submission, that strongly favors uh, the propriety of the police conduct here, and it's not something that we need to be distancing ourselves from. Ms. Ms. Doherty, do you have any comment on the appellant's citing of the scholarly articles on Harmon and the digital aid and the crit critique of the so-called proactive investigations that police, like, like the one that we're speaking of today, that the police have taken up. What, what's your view on that? 
so, I mean, Justice Moldaver has kind of stolen my thunder on, on this regard in terms of just how um, helpful the conclusions of articles like that are, where if you're assessing whether it's effective based on whether the particular individuals who you end up arresting as part of this project uh, were also committing hands-on sexual offenses against a child at that same time. I mean, in my submission, that, that question is designed to be answered as a no. And we can't discount the um, significance of the police being present in these kind of locations, such that it's put in the mind of individuals who would otherwise engage in this criminal conduct. You know, I better think twice because this might be a cop and I'm going to be in some serious trouble. And in my submission, that is that's a societal benefit that we are we would encourage as a society when we're talking about the potential access to a child prostitute, whereas we would be um, concerned by that kind of state uh, intrusion in other kinds of expressive activities online. So in my submission, we can't really say, you know, this technique doesn't work because in my submission, uh, it's not being judged on a, on a fair set of rules. That takes me to uh, the activities that are affected by the investigative technique. And the, the Court of Appeal considered the scope of the potential activities that could be impacted by the police here. And they noted that the uh, folks who would be uh, interacting with the ad that they placed would necessarily themselves be engaging in criminal conduct. And I want to distinguish between this point and what has always been the case in entrapment, which it doesn't matter that the particular accused you're talking about sort of took the took the opportunity. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what I understand the Court of Appeal to be talking about here. What I understand the Court of Appeal to be uh, looking at, again, on this question of is the space sufficiently tailored, is, you know, what can the police know or expect about the location going into this? And in my submission, when they have limited their um, investigative uh, effort to a location where every person who they end up interacting with is necessarily committing a criminal offense. In my submission, that's something or that's a limitation on the potential activities that are affected by the police technique that uh, led the Court of Appeal to a conclusion that, you know, society has little interest in shielding the criminal activity of engaging a prostitute from state intrusion, whereas we may have very strong societal interests in limiting uh, other kinds of online activities from exactly this kind of state intrusion. It's not sort of a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, assessment, and it was, in my submission, something the Court of Appeal could properly put uh, into the mix. That takes me to the scope of the group uh, potentially so, captured in the target this location. Question. Could I just ask you this sure. question, please, Ms. Doherty? Uh, of course. I think you're obviously quite right that I guess everyone that makes a call on that um, is involved in a 286 crime. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Do I have that yes. right? <clears throat> so, because they're the responder. They're not advertising right. their own sexual services. So if, in fact, the police put something on the Internet, like an ad, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was designed to capture the thousands and thousands of people that are doing this every day, mm -hmm. some might find that troublesome, I would think. P 
probably because, and I don't say this lightly, the range of offense, the, the difference of the crimes is, is of some significance. Whether you are sort of engaging with someone that you know to be under 16, for example, as opposed to, you know, buying someone or agreeing to buy someone for who's, you know, 25, 30, I don't know. It's, it's not easy to give an example, but do you hear what I'm saying? That that's why this one was tailored, sure. seems to me. Yes, and I mean, that's, again, going back to the strength of the, uh, you know, consider all the circumstances approach that comes from Ahmad. If you didn't have as, as big a punch on the seriousness uh, factor, and you still had the same punch on the number of people impacted factor, the ultimate result may be very different. I agree. That might distinguish Barnes in a way. Someone was saying, well, in Barnes, you know, there was no way they could have been seeing thousands of people every day or whatever. Um, But the crimes there, it seems to me, would have been much, much less serious Sure, there's no reason in Barnes to think any of those people are going home with a child prostitute at the end of the day. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when we speak about how the, the group potentially captured has been tailored, I want to go back to the discussion earlier today about um, the, the language the police used in crafting this ad. And there's no question that the number of people who could have seen this ad is, is significant. And the court of appeal acknowledged that, but in my submission, it's not sort of uh, a fair characterization of the police technique to say, you know, they just sort of dropped their, their line in the water and waited to see who came back. The police did take steps to limit the potential scope or spectrum of people who could have been, Uh, impacted or interacting with this ad. They put geographic limits on the ad that were all tagged, you know, local to the GTA. Uh, They put limits on uh, sort of the content of ad in terms of they posted it not in a, I think Justice Bird and Dare talks about, it's not like they threw this ad up in, you know, the auto section or something like that. They've put it in the escort subsection of the adult subsection of Backpage. Therefore, you knew that anyone who was going to be interacting with the ad wasn't just sort of on Backpage looking for whatever. They were on Backpage to be looking for um, a sex worker. And they also, you know, put language in the ad like we've discussed that targeted, you know, as young or offered as young a person as was possible on this ad. As I understand uh, the evidence in terms of the age that was automatically added to the ad sort of headline, that is comes from the information that's imported by the user. And if you try to put an age that's under 18 in that, then you can't po- then you can't post. It won't accept any number less than 18. You know, there's nothing done to ensure the person who's putting in 18 is actually 18, but you can't put 15, 16, 17 in that number field. And the police used language, young, fresh, new in town. And the officer acknowledged that, you know, someone could have taken that language different, not taken that to mean someone who was particularly young. But in my submission, the significant point is the officer has put it there in a further effort to limit 
the folks who are going to be interacting with the ad. If you went on that ad, on that web page looking for someone who was, you know, older, 35, 40, whatever, you're going right past the 18 ad. So in, in my submission, it's not, it doesn't mean that no one could have looked at that ad if they had a different intention, but it is another step the police have taken to try to limit that scope of folks who are going to be um, interacting with the ad that the police have posted. Uh, that takes me to the nature and level of privacy expected in the place under uh, investigation. And again, we've noted, I've made my point about sort of the the criminal offenses that are going on in this kind of location. And in my submission, it was open to the Court of Appeal to consider that this landscape diminished the importance of the virtual space to freedom of expression more generally. But the Court of Appeal didn't end their analysis there. They went on to find that the police technique intruded on an intensely personal privacy interest. So my submission, it's not a fair assessment of the Court of Appeals analysis to say, you know, they've ignored the potential privacy implications of the police conduct here. In my submission, they haven't. They've just taken a full scope view of that potential privacy implication and acknowledged the reality that all locations, even virtual locations, are not built the same. And they have different reasonable expectations about what's going on in them and what the kind of intrusion uh, is going to occur when the police enter those kinds of locations. That takes me through to uh, a factor that this court highlighted in uh, Ahmad, which is the use of racial profiling, stereotyping, or reliance uh, on vulnerabilities. And the Court of Appeals analysis on this point is quite short. There's no indication that the police technique relied on racial profiling, stereotyping, or reliance on vulnerabilities. And in my submission, that's an accurate description uh, of the police technique at issue here. Um, and when we look at, when my friend for Mr. Jaffer talks about, you know, vulnerabilities and we need to be finding a way to make that work in the analysis. In my submission, we can't transform the entrapment analysis into an impossible standard for the police. To require that the police take into account some vulnerability of the person who they ultimately end up interacting with, that's unknown, maybe unknowable, and could in fact be misrepresented to the police in the course of their uh, discussions with the individual is in my submission an untenable uh, framework and shouldn't be incorporated into uh, the entrapment framework, which itself, in my submission, is a strength in that it can apply to all sorts of different circumstances. We need to keep the focus on the things that the police reasonably knew at the time uh, where they offer the opportunity. That's when they're forming their reasonable suspicion. So if you had a situation where uh, the folks who are doing the drug investigation in Barnes decide, you know, I don't want to set up in the mall. I want to set up outside the local drug rehab facility because I know there'll be all kinds of people there who are just keen to get their next fix. In my submission, that would be the kind of selection of a location based on a discriminatory or vulnerability-based selection that would be the kind of suspect police conduct we would need to be taking a hard look at on this entrapment analysis. That is a very different kind of assessment in terms of what's reasonably knowable by the police at the time they form their reasonable suspicion and offer an opportunity than it is to say, well, eventually 
we get expert evidence on this individual and it turns out he's got X, Y, or Z vulnerability. In my submission, uh, that turns entrapment into a, not the kind of balancing exercise that allows for legitimate uh, police activity to be investigating significant offenses. May I ask this question, though, when when we're talking about the privacy interests that are at stake, mm. when we're in the Barnes kind of analysis, it's a very temporary intrusion into privacy, even transitory. Mm-hmm. Um, the information about the person who may have been approached on the mall disappears. And what do we make and how do we take into account that uh, there's a retention here of personal information of who went on what on this website, uh, or as uh, the defense counsel said, the 995 people um, that you now have information on that are part of police records. How does that weigh in the balance? So in my submission, we need to be uh, careful about what is what is being cataloged on my friend's argument. It's not sort of a, a, a turnstile of who's gone on the website. It is folks uh, deciding to interact with a phone number provided on an ad in a manner that per- creates in and of itself a permanent record. They are communicating by text. That's a that's not something the police are surreptitiously, you know, recording unbeknownst to the folks who are choosing to interact with an individual. That's the nature of the communication. So my submission, we don't have the same kind of uh, privacy concern or privacy Uh, impact as you would in another situation where you've had the police taking something that is more transient and making a permanent record of it. These individuals all engaged with that phone number and to the extent they decided to. And that in and of itself created a written record of the communications. But is it different that it's the state involved in the collection of that, that a person may have a different expectation of privacy to someone that they're entering into a commercial transaction with as opposed to the state? So, I mean, that gets us back to the distinction that split the court in Mills, Justice Martin, because, I mean, um, that's exactly what, what we were talking about there in terms of if you're just mistaken as to the true identity of the person who you are interacting with, um, that doesn't sort of create any kind of additional privacy uh, expectation or infringement in my submission. Um, I'm going to guess that you might take a different view in light of what you wrote in Mills, but that would be my uh, submission. And I would ground that in Justice Krakatsanis's decision in Mills. I would ground that in Justice Moldaver's brief couple liner adopting Justice Krakatsanis's uh Uh, position in Mills. So in my submission, you don't have where you could see a situation where you had the police conduct really converting what the individual had uh, decided to engage in and really changing their conduct into a different uh, qualitative exercise. You think you're just having a off the cuff, uh, off the cuff comment with somebody at the bar, and it turns out the police have a permanent recording of it forever. You know, that, um, has led this court to really uh, focus on, you know, how sort of unfair that is to the individual because you're not making an informed choice vis-a-vis the kind of communication you're having. Aren't all of these some, I'd call them all kind of sting operations. You think you're getting into one situation and it turns out, whoops, these are the police. This isn't what I thought I was getting into. I mean, in, inherent in the whole undertaking is a form of deception. 
is a form of uh, crossed expectations. And, and, and if, it's, if it's unacceptable to do that, then all of these measures are wiped out. This form of investigative technique is, is no longer possible. And not just this form of investigative technique when we're talking about online justice role, but any kind of undercover uh, exercise where you have somebody misrepresenting who they are, uh, whether or not it's by text, whether or not there's a recording of it. In my submission, that 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 misunderstanding of the fact the person you're talking with is a police officer is not the kind of... Um, change and doesn't change anything about the communication such that the person hasn't decided themselves to send off this text message for the other person to do with what they please. In my submission, um, the nature or the the qualities of the recipient don't change that uh, communication because at the end of the day, the person who, uh, anyone who responded to this ad intended to receive their communication is the person who received it. Well, yeah. Can I take you to another question, though? Is the um, is the way in which police the police uh, um, investigation deals with those private records of other people, of those who are not ultimately implicated in the in in the crime that's being investigated, is that part of the investigative technique that's that's relevant when we're when we're assessing? Uh, the bona fides of the investigation? Would that be a relevant factor? In terms of the impact of, this court has made clear in Ahmad that it's not just the privacy uh, concerns of the particular individual who's before you that is relevant on assessing whether the location has been too broadly defined um, on the reasonable suspicion analysis. So in my submission, in Ahmad, this court has already brought in a consideration of what, if any, impact there is on additional individuals. And um, I mean, I don't ask this court to change that about Ahmad, but what I um, think the Court of Appeal did right here is they didn't sort of focus exclusively on any one particular factor, the number of people and the impact it would have on them who were potentially uh, engaged with the police here and didn't end up um, uh, taking the opportunity to commit an offense. But it would the be court- relevant oh. whether those records were created, maintained, kept, or or not, uh, or discarded after the uh, project was over. I mean, the police end up in a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation there, Justice Crack could say this, because if they have the interactions and they destroy them, then they're going to be facing a different kind of post-conviction um, uh, application than an entrapment application, but still one that at the end of the day could lead to an abusive process and no uh, ability to continue the prosecution. So I think each case needs to be assessed on its own individual um, circumstances. And if you had a situation where, you know, you're investigating a crime that's alleged to have happened at the Sky Dome and there's, you know, 70,000 people who are impacted and the police have some kind of, you know, ongoing surveillance of those individuals, then, you know, we need to take those extreme third-party privacy interest impacts into account in that kind of case. But in my submission, the test works to um, assess all sorts of different kinds of criteria. As Justice Brown notes, there's no sort of closed door policy on what can be going into the mix. But in my submission, the approach that the court took here of taking, you know, the broad uh, look on what are the circumstances here, how do those 
uh, how those impact on whether this place was sufficiently tailored in these particular circumstances. And when you get to the Court of Appeals bottom line at paragraphs 146 to 148, in my submission, they're doing exactly what this court told them to do in Ahmad. They're following that roadmap. They've looked at all the circumstances. and At the end of the day, they're satisfied that this location was sufficiently tailored. That's not saying that any website is going to be sufficiently tailored for any uh, kind of offense. That's not saying that any section of any website is going to be sufficiently tailored for any offense. But this particular section of this particular website was sufficiently tailored to support the reasonable suspicion for the police to do exactly what they did here. And in my submission, uh, the Court of Appeal was correct to find that the appellants didn't meet their onus uh, to show that they were entrapped and all uh, four appeals should be dismissed. Subject to any questions either on these or on the um, inducement front, uh, those would be the Crown's submissions, Justices. Thank you. Is um, Lisa Feinberg would, uh, would speak now or uh, that's all of your submissions? Only if you have any questions on the inducement branch. The only person who used the word inducement so far was Justice Kassir. So uh, if there aren't any questions, then those would be the Crown submissions. Thank you. Well, sorry, I just wanted to ask you this. I apologize, Chief Justice, but are you going to comment on the argument that 286 may be, that was the offense that they were looking for, and then they slip over to 172? Just briefly, what, what's your position on, on that? So uh, I wasn't going to go there, Justice Moldaver, only because my friends didn't make submissions on it. You've got um, our written submissions on it. But in my submission, there's no sort of improper upping the ante by the police here. Um, This court has recognized since Mac that there's a leeway for police where there's some rational connection or proportionality between um, the offense for which they have a reasonable suspicion and an additional offense that they offer an opportunity on. So in my submission, uh, Justice Juriens was correct to find that there was a sufficient link uh, between the child prostitution and the child luring offenses um, to enable the police to provide an opportunity on the luring offense. And in my submission, my friend's arguments that, you know, the punishment for the two offenses are different Uh, therefore you shouldn't be able to offer an opportunity or that this kind of additional opportunity should be limited to a situation where you're investigating an individual. In my submission, neither of those uh, submissions are supported by our present entrapment law and nor should they be. In my submission, um, there was a sufficient link between the two offenses here such that the police could offer that opportunity on the luring offense and the any distinction between the two offenses was not so uh, serious as to put this into the kind of situation that I think my friend from Mr. Ramelson talks about where you know someone's offered a joint and then you up the ante to you know a couple pounds of cocaine or something like that that's not uh, the conduct that's going on or the kind of change that's happening here so in my submission uh, there was no entrapment on that count either. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. David Koyat. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. The Director of Public Prosecution intervenes in this appeal to make two submissions. First, that in defining virtual spaces, trial courts should be mindful of a multiplicity of factors in defining that space and that no one factor should predominate the analysis. And second, that the two distinct uh, frameworks within the first branch of entrapment, that is to say, reasonable suspicion in a person 
versus reasonable suspicion in a place should be maintained as analytically distinct, and any suggestion that there should be an overlap of the two in virtual spaces should be rejected by this court. Turning first to the, de the definition of virtual spaces, this court in Ahmad articulated a broad range of factors that should be considered in service of ensuring, as this court framed it in paragraph 41, that the police do not engage in random virtue testing. And I pause to note that the Ahmad framework or those guideposts, to use perhaps a less definitive word, were articulated less than two years ago. The trial courts in Canada to date have had few opportunities to engage in defining virtual spaces. In fact, in our factum, we highlight uh, the cases leaving aside the instant appeals uh, that have uh, confronted trial courts. And it is limited to one court of appeal in Newfoundland and two trial decisions in Quebec. All this to say, it is early days. This jurisprudence is in its nascency in terms of defining virtual spaces with precision. And I think this court should be mindful of that nascency and to ensure that it doesn't recalibrate matters too quickly to allow the trial courts the opportunity to develop uh, a jurisprudence and an approach to the definition of virtual spaces. Secondly, and I think this deals with a question that Justice Kassir pointed out earlier, web spaces are not homogeneous. Um, it's important to remember that there is a spectrum of online conduct ranging from what some would describe as pro-social websites like Facebook or TikTok, ranging all the way to the dark web and sites like the Silk Road, Alpha Bay, and eventually Backpages, all of which were seized by uh, U.S. federal law enforcement agencies over the course of the last decade. All this to say, the tools that this court has identified as uh, in a mod need to be respected because at the end of the day, different websites may implicate different issues. The Silk Road was devoted exclusively to illicit conduct. And even Facebook, as the statistics we quote in our submission illustrate, uh, make their best efforts to interdict postings related to drugs and firearms. But hundreds of thousands of those posts still make it through the best efforts of the algorithm to detect and interdict. Fundamentally, entrapment is a balancing act, a carefully calibrated one, as this court reaffirmed in Ahmad. It calibrates the privacy interests of individuals against the need of law enforcement in conducting operations that involve crimes that are difficult to detect in the physical world and that the anonymity of the internet provide a force multiplier in enabling in the digital space. That balance must be preserved. And if I may note just finally on the issue of definition with respect to prevalence, prevalence is a concerning term because re recall that reasonable suspicion embraces possibility, not probability. And I think this was illustrated by Justice Jamal's question about what is the threshold, 5%, 10%. As soon as one gets into the game of the number, we are now entering what I would say is the world of probabilistic thinking, something that the reasonable suspicion standard does not require. Turning briefly to the second submission, to the degree it's been suggested by some, and my friend says vulnerability, for example, plays no role in the analysis. I think it has to be recalled that reasonable suspicion in a place and a person 
must be maintained as distinct. Because to suggest that the police have to develop both in the virtual space would impose an added layer that the balance of entrapment is framed in Mac, Barnes, and Ahmad does not contemplate and should not contemplate. They are distinct creatures and they should be maintained as such. Chief Justice, Justices, thank you. Those are the submissions for the Director of Public Prosecutions. Thank you very much. Michael Lacey. Chief Justice, Justices, and may it please the Court, thank you for allowing the Criminal Lawyers Association to address you today. The appeals today and the questions posed highlight a significant tension between the right to be left alone when engaged in online activity without being virtue tested by undercover police officers and the need to investigate, prevent, as well as prosecute crimes being committed through the Internet. And as we did in the GOTRA appeal, we suggest today the court consider taking a different approach to circumscribing but permitting police investigations where the opportunity to commit a serious offense is going to be offered to the police in the absence of individualized suspicion, which is what we're talking about in cases that fell under this particular project. We propose a purposive rule that would make an, sorry, presumptive rule that would make it unlawful for the police to engage in this type of online investigation in the absence of prior judicial authorization. And as I listen to the questions being posed to the main uh, counsel today who are making the arguments, the proposal that this Criminal Lawyers Association makes is one that would address many of the questions that were being, was being asked. This, this, really sounds, this really sounds like an up-the-hill kind of submission, right? Not for this building, but, but you know, I mean, you're not here, but if I, you were here, I'd say, you know, head out to the street, turn left. When you see the building with the big clock tower on it, talk to somebody in there. Well, I'd submit, Justice Brown, that we start with what what are the fundamental building blocks of the entrapment doctrine? What are the constitutional foundations? And if we recognize, as this court did in Ahmad, that the right to privacy is one of those foundational building blocks, the right to liberty is also engaged, then in many contexts, this court has developed the law, as, as, as the court did in Hunter and Southam, to say, look, although there's a statute in place that allows the uh, competition people to get access to these documents, in light of the charter, in light of the fundamental principles that ground the right to privacy, uh, and, and the, in, in particular the right to be secure against an unreasonable search and seizure, we're going to create a requirement. But, but how, how does this relate to entrapment? I mean, entrapment is, I mean, the person's guilty. This isn't to defense. Right. No, but uh, fair enough. I appreciate the distinction. But if at the heart of entrapment are concerns about privacy and concerns about liberty and at the same time allowing legitimate police investigations in the context of objectively supportable standards, in this case, reasonable suspicion, then in, in principle and practice, in my submission, it's a natural evolution of the law when you're talking about online virtual investigations in the absence of individualized suspicion to require judicial authorization. And, and the questions that were posed today, for example, well, what is the space being targeted? How is the space going to be targeted online? What's the breadth and duration of the project in issue? Uh, Justice Rose's question about being concerned about the rapidity of technological change. 
the way in which people will be offered opportunities uh, 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 through these virtual investigations? Does it minimize the risk of inducement the way the police intend to do it? And what are the impact on the larger privacy interests? And to go back to Justice Rowe's analogy, it may well be that the seasoned fishermen will know how to target fish in the preferred spot on the pond or on the bay on a particular day. And that, that's a completely legitimate uh, police investigative technique, but if they're engaged in bottom trawling and are going to get lucky in the course of their bottom trawling and find some of the fish they want, you have to look at the overall picture and say, well, what's the risk? What, what's at stake when you allow that kind of activity? And the best way to do that, rather than ex post facto trying to determine what the police had, whether the grounds existed, litigating cases uh, to this court, is to require that the police obtain prior judicial authorization in much the same way that we require it in the search and seizure context. And the last thing I'll say with respect to that is that this idea of having a prior uh, judicial authorization would be completely consistent with the concern raised in a mod that state surveillance over virtual spaces is of an entirely qualitative order uh, then, sorry, if of an entirely qualitative order than surveillance over a public space, and that there's a heightened risk that innocent people will be targeted when the police engage in the types of projects that are an issue here. All that we're suggesting is that rather than examining the police officer Trong's conduct at the end of the day, when you heard significant debate about the factual record, require that he establish under oath before a judicial officer that the requisite grounds existed to engage in this technique, which can entrap and ensnare people through random virtue testing. Thank Those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Mr. Gerald Chan. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. The BCCLA focuses its submissions on the factors to consider when deciding when a virtual space has been defined with sufficient precision. And to that end, I'd like to make two points focused, of course, on the framework and not the evidence uh, in these appeals. First, when looking at the impact on the individual and that side of the ledger and that side of the balancing exercise, the factors of privacy and expressive freedom we wish to emphasize are mutually reinforcing factors. They're mutually reinforcing charter values. The reasons of the Court of Appeal in the Ramelson case, Justice Juriens considers both factors but assesses them separately and indeed finds that they cut in different directions. And we submit that that sort of analysis does not give sufficient recognition to the mutually reinforcing nature of privacy and expressive freedom. These factors call for related, not distinct inquiries. And this court has recognized in a number of cases, which we cite in our factum, that the private nature of targeted activities may heighten the seriousness of a limit on free expression, Sharp being one of those cases. And that is especially true, we say, where you have individuals taking advantage of the greater anonymity that the internet provides to express things privately they may not feel comfortable expressing publicly, such as their sexuality, such as sexual activities, sexual preferences. And indeed, the expression of sexuality is connected, we would submit, to the promotion of human flourishing and individual self-fulfillment, which are core objectives under Section 2B of the Charter. That goes back to what this court said again in Sharp. In that case, it was in the context of a law dealing with child pornography. And if it can be true in that context, then it uh, would be equally true, we would argue, in the context of communications about the purchase of sexual services. And so 
in that respect, we do take issue with what the Court of Appeals said in the Ramelson judgment, where it pronounced uh, that the core values of 2B uh, deal with political speech, social commentary, or religious opinion. And because the communications in this case didn't touch on those subjects, uh, that they were of little importance to free, free expression, uh, we would argue that you have to also take into account the values of human flourishing and individual self-fulfillment. That's the first point I wanted to make. In my remaining time, I wish to make an additional point, which is that the entrapment analysis should not ask the courts or the police to make value judgments about the activities affected by the investigation. And that is how we read paragraphs 127 to 129 of the Ramelson opinion in the court below, where apart from considering the expressive uh, value of the communications, the Court of Appeal also looked to the fact that here we have communications which constitute the, the offense of uh, communicating to obtain sexual services. And there's little societal interest in shielding those activities from state intrusion, and therefore the police should be given more leeway to target them. This is a qualitative analysis, not a quantitative analysis, and we would urge this court to reject it for three reasons that I'll articulate briefly. First, this approach in assessing or making value judgments about the nature of the affected activities is incompatible with the principle of content neutrality that governs our privacy law under Section 8 of the Charter. Second, to take this approach would be to dilute the protective effect of the rule we have from Mac and Barnes, which requires the police to only target that criminal activity for which they have a reasonable suspicion. Or if you follow the language from Mac, at least there has to be a rational connection and proportionality. If instead you take an approach where you allow the police or the courts to point to other types of criminal activity and say because it involves criminal activity, there's little societal interest in shielding it from intrusion, that would have the effect of eroding the protective effect of the rule, the protective impact of the rule from Mac and Barnes. And so we would urge you to reject that sort of approach. The final reason why you should not adopt that approach and why you should urge uh, trial courts and law enforcement not to make these value judgments is because it would have a harmful impact on marginalized communities. And you need only imagine an online forum of sexual minorities discussing their interest in consensual sexual activities that the state may perceive as having little value to or falling outside of the mainstream. The police should not have an easier time targeting these types of virtual spaces because of these value judgments. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Danielle Glatt. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, I'm here with my co-counsel, Catherine Fan, on behalf of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, I'm going to spend my time this morning focusing on the principles underlying the omni factors uh, and their proper application and role in the bona fide inquiry analysis. Uh, my intention is to address uh, Justice Karakatsanis' questions earlier in the hearing in respect of how reasonable suspicion over a clearly defined space works in virtual spaces. And Justice Kassir's question uh, later on in the hearing, uh, in which he asked if the court can consider the seriousness of the crime in the reasonable suspicion analysis. 
the CCLA submission is that the OMID factors are not part of and were not intended to be imported into the reasonable suspicion analysis. They are a residual way of capturing abusive online police investigations after a finding that the police had reasonable suspicion in the place under investigation and that it was sufficiently uh, narrow and precise to ground that reasonable suspicion. So the Ahmed factors recognize that even if police have a reasonable suspicion and the investigation is otherwise bona fide, there are circumstances where the number of people that are impacted or the risk of profiling or the impact on privacy and expressive freedoms are so great uh, that it cannot be a bona fide inquiry. So in a proper balancing where the factors aren't being imported into the reasonable suspicion analysis, pressing law enforcement objectives like the seriousness of the crime can neutralize factors that would otherwise cause the balance to tip in favor of a finding of random virtue testing. About some terrorist group wants to poison the water supply. I mean, you know, when you wipe out 200,000 people in one day, this isn't to be taken into account? Well, I, 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 the CCLA's submission is that the reasonable suspicion standard in respect of how the investigation is tailored deals with um, what the police need to, to know and to have in order for this investigation to be bona fide. And if, if we get past the reasonable suspicion standard, uh, then these factors are intended uh, to allow for a balancing that takes into consider other societal interests. But the CCLA's position is that the seriousness of the crime and uh, the other factor that was discussed today was the availability of other less intrusive techniques can't be used to turn an investigation undertaken without grounds into one that was made with grounds. Um, and the CCLA has highlighted this in, a, in its factum, uh, but you can see this type of erroneous reasoning in the trial judge's reasons in the Ramelson case, uh, paragraph 20, uh, and the Newfoundland Court of So we're commenting on the merits now, are we? I, no, Your Honor, or Justice. Um, apologies, my, my internet is um, cutting out a bit. I, I did not see who asked that question, but not commenting on the merits, rather uh, pointing out that uh, in the CCLA submission, there's a clarification um, that is required in respect of how the OMID factors are supposed to play into the bona fide inquiry analysis. And we can see in the lower court decisions uh, that the courts have been importing those factors into the reasonable suspicion analysis. Um, and the CCLA submits that there are doctrinal and policy reasons for why this approach should not be endorsed by the court. Um, and the first, in respect of the doctrinal perspective, is that um, applying the Ahmed factors to the reasonable suspicion analysis is difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile with the majority in Ahmed's clear message that reasonable suspicion and entrapment is the same reasonable suspicion described by this court in J. Hill and Kang Brown. Can I just ask you, aren't those factors relevant to bona fides of the investigation? of the investigative techniques? Why are you saying there are separate, uh, separate, separate factors that come somehow after the fact? Uh, the CCLA's position is that as a threshold issue, uh, there must be reasonable suspicion 
over the particular place that's being yes. investigated and that the omid factors are intended to be a residual balancing that takes into consideration other factors that don't have a role in the reasonable suspicion analysis. And I see that I am out of time. Uh, subject to any further questions, those are the CCLA submissions. Thank you very much. Mr. Dare. Thank you, Chief Just. Thank you, Chief, Chief Justice and judge, judges. Um, I would just like to respectfully um, rely on um, replies um, that my lawyer submitted is um, Factrum fact, and um, other um, replies from other lawyers that has been involved in the case. And that's all I would say. Um, a reply, Mr. Litkowski. I'll rely on what he says. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. Uh, briefly in reply, uh, near the end of uh, my friend Ms. Doherty's submissions, Justice Maldiver asked about um, an area that I had raised in my factum, which is the uh, entrapment with respect to the luring count as opposed to the main count of the 286 offense, um, and, and she responded that I hadn't referred to it in oral argument. I did run out of time. I do rely on my submissions. I just want to make that clear. They're set out in my factum. If anybody has any additional questions, I'm pleased to entertain them, but, uh, but just to be clear, I didn't deal with it in my original time allotment simply because there wasn't enough time. Um, with respect to the uh, two other brief points that are related that Ms. Doherty made to reply to, one of the, one of the, her submissions um, emphasized Mills and the manner in which this court split and, and dealt with the uh, expectation of privacy that arises in communications when, in fact, it's an undercover officer that's involved. Uh, I want to make it clear that this case, it's important to acknowledge, I submit, that this is the factual opposite of Mills. In Mills, the accused thought he was speaking uh, with a child. It turned out not to be a child. And this court, in its analysis, uh, certainly in the, in the uh, majority decision, made it clear that there was no expectation of privacy that one had when communicating with a child uh, in that fashion. Uh, here, the people that responded to the ad were communicating with what they initially thought was an adult. That, that part's clear. And in my respectful submission, although it may be criminal conduct uh, in, of a much less serious offense, a 286 communication with an adult offense, I'll just parenthetically uh, say that it's an offense that is rarely, if ever, even prosecuted. And the record talks about that, how the, you know, the vast majority of police resources uh, are uh, they choose not to, to even bother with, with these individuals that uh, solicit adults. Um, so in my respectful submission, uh, the fact is that there is an expectation of privacy that all individuals who respond to what they believe to be an adult would have. It is, uh, for reasons that others have already made submissions about, it is an important aspect of privacy to maintain. And this court has made it clear that the criminality of um, underlying conduct is not a bar to maintaining an appropriate expectation of privacy. And, you know, my, Ms. Doherty talked about how these cases involve offenses that are serious and they have consequences that are serious and they're difficult to investigate, uh, all of which can be said about gun trafficking. Uh, gun trafficking is also very serious. It is also a scourge and is also difficult to investigate. 
And yet, when two gun traffickers are exchanging messages electronically with one another in America, this court made it clear that there was a constitutional barrier that still applied. There was still an expectation of privacy that protected those conversations and made them unavailable to the state absent uh, compliance with constitutional standards. So in my respectful submission, uh, Mills, to the extent that my friend uh, Ms. Doherty referred to it, I, I just wanted to acknowledge briefly that it's the factual inverse of this case. And all the communications here, although technically committing a minor criminal offense, uh, deserve the constitutional protection. And then, of course, it goes into the balancing that we referred to earlier, and I'm not going to repeat any of my submissions uh, that I've already made. Uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity for reply. Subject to any questions. Thank you very much. Thank you all for your uh, submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.